At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello, hello. Welcome to 2023. This is Amy. Paul and I are still on vacation. We are sleeping off that champagne and that New Year's caviar. Because I got to say, last year, my friend Karina gave me this vintage caviar serving dish for Christmas. And even though I personally am way too cheap to splurge on like the good, good stuff, my cheap stuff really tastes better in a big old hunk of brass. But enough about that. Happy January. Yes, it is now January, the month where we are going to be doing Jean Dielman, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Brussels. We're doing it next week because we all deserve to have an opinion on this Chantal Ackerman film from 1975. It took Vertigo down. So what could take Vertigo down? Let's all talk about it. Let's all find out. If there's going to be a new sight and sound poll, we got to sound smart when we talk about it. But as you're taking on that movie, you deserve a little treat. So we are freeing one of our most popular and I would say polarizing episodes from The Stitcher Vault. Yes, it is love, actually. I hope that all of you are spending the season actually talking to the people you're in love with because nobody in this movie is. We're going to get into that. We're going to get as well into the UK-USA tensions that were happening exactly 20 years ago when this movie came out and how that plays into why Billy Bob Thornton's American president uh, sucks. And we have the most special guest, Lindy West, whose essay on love actually kicked off this round of new appraisals of this holiday stalwart that we are living in. So without further ado... Picture me at your door, holding up a sign, and that sign says, let's unspool it. The year is 2003. Armed undercover sky marshals begin flying on aircraft to prevent terrorist attacks following 9-11. The new U.S. Department of Homeland Security officially begins operations. Remember that? Code red, code blue, code yellow. The U.S. and the U.K. start their shock and awe campaign with massive airstrikes on military targets in Baghdad before the invasion of Iraq by land forces. To protest France's stand on Iraq, some Americans are buying freedom fries with their burgers. We are fucking idiots. Apple launches iTunes and sells 10 million songs within four months of launch, and that's before they made you mandatorily download that U2 album. The popular films of the year include Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Finding Nemo, Matrix Reloaded, and today's film, Love Actually. Amy, 
It's a daunting task, but who's in it, what's it about, and who made it, and what was on the charts? Oh my god. Okay, here we go. Love Actually is written and directed by Richard Curtis. Richard Curtis, in addition to writing songs for the heebie-jeebies, was already a major figure in British comedy and British romance and British romantic comedy at the time that he made this film. He was already a commander of the British Empire because he had written Black Adder. He wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral, which set a record for being the highest grossing British film of all time. Then he wrote Notting Hill, which set the next record for the top grossing British film of all time. Then he did Bridget Jones, the Bridget Jones sequel. He recently did Yesterday. And he finally started directing films with this one, Love Actually, a movie that was so hyped up. Everybody was at the premiere because every actor that British people love was in this movie. Uh, Plot summary. Jesus Christ. Here we go. All right. There's like nine romances. Hugh Grant is the prime minister who's romancing his underling, played by Martine McCushin. Liam Neeson is a grieving widow trying to help his stepson find love while he hopes to find his own Claudia Schiffer. Laura Linney has a crush on a guy in her office. Bill Nighy plays like this rock and roll, sleazy, drug-addled star trying to get his song to number one on the charts. Colin Firth is a guy whose girlfriend cheats on him, so he falls in love with his Portuguese maid. Emma Thompson is married to Alan Rickman, but he is having an affair with his secretary. Uh, Martin Freeman and Joanna Page are two stunt doubles doing a porn in a movie who are humping each other. And Keira Knightley has just married Chiwetel Ejiofor, and yet his best friend Andrew Lincoln has a crush on her. Did I cover everybody? Because that is a lot. There's a couple more characters here you didn't mention. Of course, the great Rowan Atkinson, who was written to be an angel, but we'll get into that. Uh, but yes, we're going to break down this movie and anything you missed, we will we will get into. Now, I should say up at the top, part of why it's really important that we do this movie is because in 2016, it beat out It's a Wonderful Life as Britain's favorite Christmas movie. And as It's a Wonderful Life is one of our favorite Christmas movies, and I think the best Christmas movie that the AFI had on its list so far... Yeah, you win, Love Actually. You have demanded the right to come on this show to get serious consideration. Uh, This is a film that Richard Curtis said, you know, he was inspired by Nashville. He said, this movie is my pulp fiction. This is a movie that aspired to be one of the greats and has been remade more times than Nashville and Pulp Fiction put together. There's versions of Love Actually in Dutch. It's called Love is All. In Hindi, it's called Salute to Love. In Polish, it's called Letters to Santa. In Japanese, it's called It All Began When I Met You. In Russian, where it is called New Year's Trees. It is an everything movie. Take a listen. So if, you, if you've got a framed picture like, for instance, this one of blue, mm-hmm. you, you can just write on it. Uh, a lot of kids watching, Billy. Oh, yeah. Hiya, kids. Here's an important message from your Uncle Bill. Don't buy drugs. Become a pop star and they give you them for free. And I do believe uh, it's a commercial break. Love actually came out on November 3rd, 2003. As Paul said, it was a pivotal time because this movie talks about love in the era of 9-11. On the charts that time, when you take that and rewind it back, is a singer who is just becoming her own brand, actually. She was on the charts with her second song to ever hit number two, it is Beyonce in Baby Boy, a song about your fantastical dream romance. Baby boy, 
Man, you go back and watch this video, Paul. It makes me feel old to see Beyonce so young. You know, I got to say, I think Sean Paul looks even better. <laughs> All right. So, Amy, before we start, let's just check in with each other about where we are at with this film. Like, what is our journey with it? Because unlike a lot of films we've done on the show, this movie is incredibly popular. We're in the middle of the holiday season and it's hard to escape this movie. I think I've seen this movie not once, not twice, but probably upwards of 10 times at one point. That wait, that's a lot of times, Paul. I know. You know, at one point I actually sat down with a notebook and like mapped out the movie because I was so interested in how you would do a giant ensemble like this. I really wanted to understand how many scenes were in it and how many times they cut back and forth. And I had all these like little charts and I wanted to try to find that for today, but I couldn't find it and it doesn't mean anything. But it is a masterful film in the sense that it is this gigantic ensemble with amazing actors and it's really deftly directed. I have opinions about it, but as far as pacing is concerned, the movie really flows in a way where I think hides a lot of its flaws. Oh, yeah. I mean, Richard Curtis has psychoanalyzed his own film and said he thinks that part of the reason why it's so successful is because, and this is his quote, it's got so many plots that people can't remember what's going to happen next. So it's satisfying to rewatch, not like a thriller where you know who's about to get killed. I would hmm. agree with that because I feel like love actually comes on and it moves so fast that it is incredibly easy to just watch, to just put on, to sink into. And I would say, despite it all, it is a great movie in one rubric. Absolutely. Because if you're going to say, hey, do you want to put on a movie with a bunch of your friends where you feel like it's OK if you hang out and also yell at the screen and bond together? This is a perfect movie for that. This is the dream movie to put on when you don't want to like totally sink in and watch it, but you want to be around people and you want to have a shared experience. Watching this movie is like entering a fugue state where you disappear back into the mindset of 2003. I, I mean, this is the way I feel about a lot of movies that I've seen recently. Uh, I, I put The Last Jedi in this category where it's, uh, I call it an Indian restaurant movie, which is every time you go to like uh, like a fun local Indian restaurant, they're playing like these great Bollywood films. And occasionally during dinner, you look up, and you're like, whoa, that looks cool. And then you go back to eating and you're talking. Oh, and everyone watches the screen for a second. You go back and it's visually cool and you like those people and you're kind of engaged. That's like, I mean, that in the highest compliment, it's just sort of a, oh yeah, we're here, we're in, we're out. It's not a movie to be, I think, uh, sliced and diced or analyzed uh, intently in a way, because it's it's sort of I think it is supposed to be flash and magic and fun and in in many ways a, a perfect encapsulation of what the holiday season is, you know, in this like, hey, it's it's happening so quick and now it's over and now. Oh, it's a new year. OK, oh, what, what just happened? Like you just kind of caught in, a, in the haze of a Christmas morning. <laughs> Although I would say this is a movie, in fact, now to be like psychoanalyzed mm. incredibly deeply. I would like to psychoanalyze it just beginning with the title. I mean, love actually. Love actually. Like, what does this title mean to you? Does it mean that Richard Curtis is saying this is actually what love is? Because I always get thrown by this title. And I was listening really closely when you hear it for the first time. You mm -hmm. hear it for the first time when Hugh Grant at the beginning is talking about, you know, the greed and misery in the world, alluding to 9-11. And he says the title like this. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. 
But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. Okay, the way that he says it, he says, love actually is all around. He emphasizes a, a different word. And I find that kind of weird. Like, I feel like he should be saying, love actually is all around, or love actually is all around. But he says, love actually is all around. And I don't know why, but this really screws with my head. I don't it, understand what you think he's pushing by emphasizing is. He's emphasizing the existence of love, not what love is. Do you know what I mean? No, but I think the, when you try to love he's actually, arguing, you're saying this is what love is. No, but you he's see, saying, I think we're catching love him. Love actually is here, and I think that that's something different. You see, I think he's in the middle of an argument. He's like, no, 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 love actually is all around. Someone said, love. Someone said to him, love isn't around, and we're just hearing his side. He's like, no, it is around. Okay, but see, no, this is what I'm getting at. This is what I'm getting at. Is this title, you know, arguing with somebody who says love isn't? Like, as yes. in love doesn't exist? Or yes. is it saying, I think love is like this? Is it about no, the definition think, of love or the existence of love? This is all right. This movie is incredibly flawed. I'm going to say a couple things here, too. And just, just so everyone knows, did I cry at the end of this movie after I've seen it 10 times and analyzed it? Yeah. I what? fucking cried three times during this movie. So what? When? I, oh, I'll tell you all about it. I'll break it down. I mean, throughout. And then do... I get sucked into romance and rom-coms. Yeah, I love it. So I don't want anyone to think I'm a Grinch here, but let's break this down because this is an argument to 9-11 culture in the craziest way. Like the opening line where he is talking about, on 9-11, people didn't call and out of revenge or hatred, they called with love. Yeah, no shit, motherfucker. Those people were dying. Of course, they're calling their loved ones, not their enemies. Who is dying and calling their enemies? Like, it's it's a flawed argument to start with, right? And I think the idea is we're in a state of war, right? We have homeland security, we have bombings, we're bombing other countries, we're living in a state of fear, and Hugh Grant is saying, you know what? We're in war, but we actually are surrounded by love. And then the entire movie is the most fucked up love, the most destructive, uh, toxic love. It's it's not a feel-good movie. This is a fuck-you movie on every level. But it's like in, it's almost like saying... Like, there's no crime, and then all you do is just show people get mugged the entire time. But it's like, it, there, there's something so weird. It's like, the love that they're showing is bad for the most part. Like, 90% of it. I wrote it down. There's like two or three loves in this love, actually, that are healthy. And one is a medium. <laughs> 
I'm impressed you found that many loves in this movie that are healthy. I mean, but first, like, let's just even talk about that opening because he's doing this over documentary footage of like real life people hugging is it real? at an airport. It is real. Or is real. it shot that way? Okay. It is real. It is real. It is real. What they did is they went to Heathrow with hidden cameras. And so they like recorded people with hidden cameras. And then like when they found people that they thought looked good for the clip, they walked up and they got their permission to use it. Now I have to say like, they, there's what, like two minutes of hugging in this movie and then like another minute of hugging at the end. It took them apparently a whole week of being at Heathrow to sure. get that footage, which makes me think- Because airports fucking suck. In the yeah. middle of 2001, like right after 9-11, you think everyone's walking through the, the airport with their assholes like so tight because they think they're going to die. That's international flights. Like airports were not a chill place after 9-11. Airports were like, take off your shoes, your socks, your jacket, your go through your bag. Like that was not a fun time. And the way that they make- the airport at the end. We'll get into the airport at the end. But yeah, of course yeah. it took two weeks. Of course. You weren't even allowed week. in there. Yeah. Well, it took a whole week. It took a whole week. And I think the fact that it took a week to get like 10 hugs kind of says from the beginning that this movie is taking place in an alternate reality. Also, I would like to say that the people that are getting hugged in the opening of this, the kind of love that you see is a lot of like mothers and daughters, fathers and sons. Types of love that aren't really represented in love, actually. Love actually is about like a specific kind of love. Love actually is about, I have a crush on you and I don't know how to say it. That's what love actually is. Love actually is even worse than that. It's like, I have a crush on you and I don't even understand you or had a conversation with you. And that is the love that is being forwarded throughout this whole movie. And I'm not trying to have a woke perspective on it, but this is simply like... This is, I mean, I know it's been played to death. Stalker level love. You're right. Okay. Who falls into that category? Mark, who is in love with his friend Peter's wife, Kira Knightley, who, by the way, is 18 in this movie. Wow. Uh, And tucks her ears into a cap. Never saw that before. Didn't know. Is that a thing that women do? Do they tuck their ears into caps? I guess if they're cold. And from what we understand in the movie, they've never spoken. Like, They don't speak. She says, you never talk to me. But yet he is in love with her. Okay. And that continues with Colin Firth, who is cheated on and then moves to a country house to write a, you know, a book on loose leaf and uh, and falls in love with a woman that he can't speak to. And they what? Fall in love. But they don't they don't even do gestures to understand. They fall in love without speaking. All right. Who yeah, they, they talk at each other, but you actually never even see them communicate in kind of mime if or anything like that. Out yeah. the, if you took out the subtitles, it would not be romantic. It wasn't a, it wasn't even a meet cute. The only thing that makes that relationship at all engaging is the dialogue and the way the dialogue volleys between the two of them in subtitles. Not yeah. not if you watch that and it was. Yeah, nothing. Well, even with the subtitles, she just calls him fat and dumb. Oh, like, well, this whole movie so, is okay. about fat all shame. Right. I mean, every right. every character <laughs> is called fat. And ev- like, that's the other love is all a- love, actually. And fat people are gross should be like the underlying of this, because <laughs> like there is this thing where 
everyone's being like ridiculed. Like, oh, you're the princess of Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, she's got big thighs. Oh, we call her fat. Like, I'm like, oh, my dad calls me plumpy. Ah! I'm like, God damn it. (laughs) In Um, front of the prime minister. Okay, so that's another couple. Oh, you've got Laura Linney, who's in love with her co-worker. They've been working together for seven years. He doesn't know that she has a brother. He doesn't know anything about her. Because... They don't talk. They have not had any really. It's not even on a typical like to me, a typical office flirtation is like, oh, we we get together. We joke around like it's my, you know, my work wife, my work husband, my work partner, whatever it is. They don't they seem to be ships that sail in the night like they they don't they just pass each other in the night. They don't they don't have any connection at all besides unrequited love and not understanding who each other is. Okay, and then you've got the little kid, Sam, uh, played mm-hmm. by Thomas Sangster, who's in love with a girl, Joanna, from school, who, by the way, like, has the exact same name as his dead mother. They're both didn't named have to do that. Joanna. This comes up, it is mentioned, it is mentioned right here. General wisdom is that in the end, there isn't just one person for each of us. It was for Kate and Leah. It was for you. There is for me. She's the one. Fair enough. And her name's Joanna. Yeah, I know. Same as Mum. And then it is somehow never brought up again that the kid might be dealing with something else because his mom has just died at the very beginning of the film. The very beginning of the film. Oh. And it does not come up again. Well, except that you he's know magically what? in love with a girl with the same name. And guess what? He's never talked to (laughs) her. He has never spoken to this girl. Like everything that Liam Neeson uh, like (laughs) tells him to do never says like, have you talked to her? He literally says she doesn't know I exist. I'm in love with her. She's perfect. She's going back to America. You're talking like like she's a little Mariah Carey. I want to get into I want to like unpack her in a major way. But yes, another unrequited love. Um, man, oh man. Um, all right. So then the other ones, these are the ones that I thought were a little bit more, um, flexible, like some, not saying right, but flexible. I thought that Hugh Grant and Natalie, uh, and I know I'm mixing, uh, character names and actor names, um, had a, like a, a, a meet cute. I felt like there was something, there was a little electricity there. I don't think it's all totally right. And considering the fact that he fires her because he's attracted to her, which I believe you could get sued for. uh, But that at least to me felt like there was some there there. Like they had some they had some connection right on some level. I'm not saying it's great, but at least they communicated. And that to me, that's a win in this movie at this point. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. And then you've got Judy and John, who I would say are iffy. These are the, this is like the naked couple who are humping the whole time. No, the because- Judy and John are the they are the lighthouse. Oh. They're the most love that we have. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, then that's terrible because like what they're doing is they're talking about like traffic and the weather. They're not actually having conversations. No, 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 no. They're talking about traffic and the weather. And then a month later, they are engaged. That is insane behavior. Okay. They talk about traffic and then you get engaged. That's like me getting married to my mailman, like tomorrow. Okay. Well, I know my mailman better than they know each other. First of all, can we also just 
for a second. And I'm not trying to be like, well, what about this or what about that? But I'm going to say that a couple times. What the fuck movie were they shooting? It's not a porn because it looks way more, uh, you know, like they're not doing lighting setups for a porn. So it's like, what kind of movie has that much hardcore fucking that they're working for a month? Like a month, like they're working nonstop in a hardcore fuck movie. And it's like, it's, it's graphic. And to the point where I'm just like, they don't even like, they don't want to make them stand-ins. They need them to be like, simulating fucking all the time. It's like, that would have been a funny heightening. Like the first time you see them, they're extras, then they're stand-ins, then they're fucking, but they're just fucking the whole time. And you know, the whole reason why there's so much nudity in this movie, uh, is because, uh, (laughs) this is so terrible, but I think it speaks to Richard Curtis. He said that, um, the universal said, you got to take out all this nudity, uh, because you're going to like lose like $50 million. And he's like, no, because when I was a teenager, I only went to movies to see nudity. So I'm keeping it in because I want to stay true to my younger self. So, <laughs> so fucked up. The nudity in this movie is so is so out of place that I feel uncomfortable. But I like that relationship. I like I like Martin Freeman uh, in this, uh, and I like the two of them. And I hear what you're saying. We don't. It's like the bachelor level of love, where it's like two people are sitting down and they're talking about, "Are we in love?" But they're not actually talking about anything. It's like on the bachelor, they just sit around talking about, "Are you here for the right reasons?" Well, they don't. There's nothing there. But I do feel like in all that fucking, they probably had deeper conversations. But if so, this movie doesn't think they're important. It doesn't think it's important to see people like connect. It's no, because like, it's funnier it, it to have him like, like ramming her from behind, yeah, talking about yeah. Yeah, it just the one the, joke over and over But it is just again. like the one joke. I actually like your idea about having the escalation. I think that'd be yeah. good if they're like f- supposed it, to be fake dancing, fake kissing. Yeah, it would have been funny. It would have actually led to something instead of just just sex, sex, sex. And it's also like, not that I'm, okay, not that, not that I know that much about how to light, uh, you know, <laughs> like sex scenes. But I will say like, uh please fondle the breast for the lighting. It's like, what? What? Like, exactly. Wait. Please, and please I, hump for the lighting. No, you need how, to be thrusting for the lighting for the all lighting. I know, all I know is that on movie sets and even before like the last couple of years, like nudity is, even with stand-ins, it's something that is like very protected. In this movie, they're just treating them like cattle like they are like they are bodies they are not like like there's no they're like they, they, why do they have to be naked why is he fully clothed and why is she naked i mean that's another thing too but okay but that's my favorite love story yeah. in this that's wow. that to that's, me at least is true. that that is i mean if and if we're saying that's the best all right let's uh <laughs> well, uh, well, right. well we're leaving yeah. out one but i do have a question no i have another question have, yes which is like i wonder who the actor is that martin freeman was supposed to be like a stand-in for as well because like usually in a movie for Martin like, Freeman yeah when they're in a movie where there's like that much nudity you think like I don't know the the actor would be a little bit like oh, I'm kind of buffer I've been swole for this role I've, I've been like working out to be this naked and then you have this guy be my body double I think that's a little weird unless yeah. like who else would they be casting in that part Lars Van Trier is it a Lars Van Trier movie <laughs> maybe I mean I also the sets noticed, I can't make heads or tails of the sets of that movie either I mean, this makes me a little bit uncomfortable to say this out loud, but I mm-hmm. do feel like when you look at pictures of Richard Curtis, it kind of looks like Martin Freeman of the future. Like Martin Freeman, That's if funny. he could time travel, could be Richard Curtis. So I imagine that there's a little bit of wish fulfillment in casting a guy who looks like his younger self in this part. 
Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. So let me talk about the relationship that I think is probably the most problematic. But again, I'm going to say, while problematic, I at least understand it as love or attraction, which is Alan Rickman and his secretary. Oh, my God. Thank you. I was going to say that, too, that of all the couples in this movie, they're sort of the most realistic. Is that weird? No, it's like there is something there that's like a sexual energy. There's like that little moment of flirtation when he calls her outside to say like what she wanted for Christmas. I like like I know we're not supposed to want him to do that. And I don't really want him to do that. But I recognize I recognize it like I recognize (laughs) like, oh, that's a flirtation. That's an interesting flirtation. But the problem with that relationship is, in my opinion, what's so wrong with with his wife because they also seem to have like a pretty good thing too they don't seem broken and I think that that's something interesting too and I wanted to break that down with you as well like I like showing Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson as being like love that has stood the test of time or has been like what is love that has been together for a decade where it doesn't have love isn't always just about new love you know new love is boring because we all can tell what new love is but like long love is an interesting story to tell too well yeah i mean they're like emma thompson and alan rickman are the only examples of old love in the movie mm-hmm. and so it's a little well laura linney and her brother too okay brother okay Right. I mean, if we're we're talking about like romantic love, okay, I wanted to. Her brother tries to like hit her in the face. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that scene. I. That scene is like. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of problematic stuff. (laughs) Right, but like when Emma Thompson and Alan Ringman, when they are the only old love, then this movie is basically saying old love cannot last. When like hot secretary comes into the picture, hot secretary, who I will say is so over the top, like sitting around with her legs spread open in the, that's not even comfortable looking. No, she seems like she's like, like she is trying to like, almost like she was sent here to seduce him. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like the Terminator. That's what I was thinking. She's like the Terminator. A sex Terminator. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She really is. I mean, and it's like, I at least get why she likes him or I don't even really know. I mean, but I guess they work together. So there's like some connection and unrequited love. And again, we're not seeing the meat of any relationship. It is the bachelor of rom-coms. It's like, we're not seeing really anything more than like the biggest stereotype 
of these characters. Can we talk about the other love that I think is good, which is, but really doesn't really pay off until the end, but Bill Nye and his manager. Yes, I was terrified that you're going to say the guy who goes to America to get laid by girls who think British accents are hot. Oh, I mean, I'm not even putting that in my love. Like, I'm that that doesn't even get in the love. That doesn't even get in the love. Like, that does not even part of the discussion. I don't think because that is just like that's Jacob's ladder to me. That dude died on a plane crash. That dude was <laughs> on a 9/11 plane, and that is a fantasy that he is having. Like that is that can't be anything but that. I mean, and by the way, they got like every the hottest like Maxim cover girl models for that sequence. It's it's so outlandish. It's so like <laughs> what's so crazy about it is like this movie is fueled by like every male ego thing like oh my gosh i'll go to minnesota i'll go to milwaukee and i'll get laid by you like it's there's no reality in this movie whatsoever and like why is that like why is his fantasy like so fucking bonkers like it, it's like you know it's so like that is well okay there yeah. is truth in it i would say that a british accent makes a man 15 percent hotter like I, okay, I, sure. I get the scene where they're sure. sitting around asking him to say straw. Right. <laughs> what, what do you call that? Uh, bottle. Bottle. <laughs> what about this? Uh, straw. 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 <laughs> what about this? Uh, table. Table. Oh, it's the same. same. But yes, it is bonkers that they only have one bed to share between four girls and that they're too poor to like buy pajamas, but they at least have yeah. money to go out and like be at the bar. Amy, I mean that... Like it's also a what you're describing house. there it's is a, they live in a you are describing house. a porn fantasy like that is yeah. a letter to penthouse like that is doing nobody any like great fine but again it's a this movie is a male fantasy this house how yes. do you have a two story house and all well they have the bed. upper they're probably like a mother daughter and they rent the upper again it is bonkers <laughs> and i also feel like this guy doesn't come across smooth at all like there is something to be said for and again i'm well, i'm not going to rewrite it but like a, a nebishy more quiet like if martin freeman was like ah oh, I, I just got broken up by my girlfriend i don't have anybody and then he goes to milwaukee and then like all these girls find him attractive and he like feels that that's exciting this guy is like wearing a shirt that says like i like the fuck and he's like i need to go and get I'm, i have a bag full of condoms like he's like just a walking dick and like 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 uh, personified and everyone's like like there's his personality is like ugly you know what I'm saying? Like, he's not charming at all, I don't think. I mean, maybe he is part of the film's, I would say, deserved at this time anti-Americanism. I mean, because okay. basically what? You have like three different American characters in here. Laura Linney is fine. She's nice. The movie doesn't hate her. But she is also like the character who winds up totally alone and doesn't even manage to make it to like the airport scene at the very end. It's just sort of like that guy didn't date you. He left because like you had to go see your brother and now you're you don't even get a happy ending. Like she's the no, only one. No, they come back. Don't they come back on Christmas? Like they, they have like a little moment on Christmas yeah, Eve. Right? He like says Merry Christmas and then leaves her alone. Mm. So it doesn't go anywhere. So like that American is punished. 
And then like, there's these dumb American girls who will just sleep with anybody with an accent. Like there's actually, a, they were at the airport scene, Shannon Elizabeth and Denise Richards. And they like walked up to Hugh Grant and introduced themselves. And Shannon Elizabeth apparently said to Hugh Grant, I am so embarrassed that I'm dressed this way. I feel like a hooker. And Hugh Grant said, my favorite. Oh, well, I uh, guess. Charming, it's... charming humor. Maybe. Charming. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, charming. Boy, oh boy. Remember that? I mean, that was, I remember being such a Hugh Grant fan. I think that came out around nine months, which was a movie that I really liked when I saw it back then. And that was like, that was such a scandal. We have really, way to go us. Uh, we have really upgraded our scandals. I mean, that is nothing now. That is a, that's a blip on the radar. That wouldn't even make uh, like network news for a half a day now anymore. Picking up a sex worker. That wouldn't even rate anymore. Man, I remember that happened. And then a few years later, I moved to L.A. and I drove by the intersection where it happened. And I felt a little bit of a thrill of glamour. Like, Ooh, oh, I got to see where that LA. is. Glamour happens here. It's It was by a donut shop at the time. Um, okay. And then there is, of course, the ultra American Billy Bob Thornton as the president of America who mm-hmm. shows up just to sexually harass uh, the, the prime minister's secretary. In like the fastest sexual harassment scene I've ever seen. It's like yeah. Hugh Grant is in the room with him. Hugh Grant leaves to get a manila folder. And I counted it. It takes Billy Bob Thornton 20 seconds to sexually harass Natalie, his secretary. After which Hugh Grant gets to give his like big dramatic kind of like, I'll show you America speech. Mm, yeah. I fear that this has become a bad relationship. A relationship based on the president taking exactly what he wants and casually ignoring all those things that really matter to um, Britain. We may be a small country, but we're a great one too. A country of Shakespeare, Churchill, the Beatles, Sean Connery, Harry Potter, (laughs) David Beckham's right foot, David Beckham's left foot, come with that. A friend who bullies us is no longer a friend. And since bullies only respond to strength, from now onward, I will be prepared to be much stronger. And the president should be prepared for that. Which I would like to say is the one bad relationship in this movie that is actually called out as a bad relationship. Even though right. people are like cheating on each other left and right. But by the way, it's only called out as a bad relationship once Billy Bob Thornton, like, and I'm using this term not because I believe it, but I'm going to simplify it, touched his property, right? Like, basically, if Billy Bob Thornton did not touch Natalie, there would have been no speech. It was like, you touched my girl. Now I'm mad at you. Like, it, like so even that is like, the, the big speech is also coming from a totally wrong-headed place. Yeah, and also the person who, like, apologizes for it, the only person who apologizes for it is Natalie, the person yeah. who got assaulted at the end of the movie, right before they finally get together. I just wanted to say, um, thank you for the Christmas card. You're welcome. Look, I'm so sorry about that day. I mean, I came into the room and he sinked towards me and there was a fire and he's the president of the United States and nothing happened, I promise. And I just felt like such a fool because I think about you all the time, actually. And I think you're the man that I really... Oh, wow. That really was just around the corner. Uh, By the way, this scene, this whole interaction of like Hugh Grant 
boyish, boyish prime minister huffing up against like bullying, vaguely Southern American president, of course, was like paralleling Tony Blair and his relationship with George Bush at the time, which put Tony Blair himself in a weird position. Like people were like, be more like Hugh Grant in Love Actually, which is a very weird thing to say to a person weird. who's like actually a politician. But they're like, stand up to him. Hugh Grant did it like right after he danced to jump. Like, why don't you do it? And Blair finally had to give like a speech where he said, I know that there is a bit of us that would like me to do a Hugh Grant in Love Actually and tell America where to get off. But the difference between a good film and real life is that in real life, there's the next day, the next year, the next lifetime to contemplate all the ruinous consequences of easy applause. Mm. But he actually had to address it, address the fact that this fantasy movie made him look like weak for not being as tough on George Bush as Hugh Grant was on Billy Bob Thornton. And it's interesting because this movie is a post 9-11 film, but they are parodying Bill Clinton. That is not... George Bush, like he is dressed, you know, Billy Bob is dressed as Bill Clinton, like that tie, that look. I mean, he doesn't look like him, but that's what I think they're going for there. They're not going yeah. for George Bush. Well, it's, um, like a, it's like a mashup. It's like a mashup. I think it's like the politics of George Bush and the actions of Bill Clinton. The other and probably the most confounding are we still talking I, about relationships, James? We are. I mean, well, that's what the whole movie is about, and we have to kind of break yeah. them all down. I mean, okay. the other one that is really tough for me is Liam Neeson, who I think is doing... I mean, look, everybody in this movie is actually doing a great job. I have no real, like, I have I have issues with their characters. I have no issues with them as actors. Um, and, like, Liam Neeson is a grieving stepfather and I had a real issue with this and I want to know if it like stuck out to you like they really wanted to like hammer home stepson stepson why stepson like why not just make it his son this is his wife and this is his son but they get like and and when Claudia Schiffer shows up and it's not really Claudia Schiffer it's just somebody I mean it is Claudia Schiffer pretending to look like Claudia whatever the the idea being that he immediately says, she's like, oh, I, I know your son, he goes, oh, stepson. Like, like, I'm not spoiled. I didn't I didn't drop my seed yet. So I, I still got a good one here like that. Don't worry about that one. That's my dead wife's. Like, eh, you know, I'm a stepdad. It was such a weird. There's so many weird choices that this movie makes. And that being a giant one, like. It's just why? Why overcomplicate the situation? Like that's his stepson. And why is he like always saying stepson, stepson, stepson? It's like, like That's what? true. Why? Is it because it would be too weird if it was his son since all they do is talk about chicks? I mean, is it because it's a little less creepy to obsess over a child's love life if you're not related to him? No, as I say that out loud, it suddenly seems more creepy to obsess over a child's love life if you're not blood related to him. Because that's like literally all they talk about. They watch Titanic together. And then there's kind of that screwed up scene where they're watching Titanic together. They're doing the arms thing on the couch. And then like the little kid tries to fall back into Liam's arms and he like lets him fall down. And he says, you trust me? Fool. Which like, He's pranking his kid, his stepson, whose mom just died by like not even catching him when they're watching Titanic together to do the trust fall. And I had a thought watching this movie. I'm like, here I am watching a movie that is beloved by so many and that I consider to be a pile of garbage. Is this the exact emotion that other people feel when they are watching Titanic? I'm just on the other side of it. Well, I was going to ask you about this because 
It is a tricky thing. I mean, let's just say also, this movie deals with uh, just a complete, complete warping of time. I mean, nothing makes sense. Like, you see the guy who is lighting the porno uh, in the wedding, but then he's lighting the porno, it seems like, right afterwards. The son is complaining about this girl not liking him, and he's like, let's go watch a movie, but it seems like it's, like, really late at night. So it's like, are they watching a three-hour movie, like, at midnight? Like, he, the kid can't sleep, like... The timing of everything on this movie, you know, for the fact that Bill Nye is recording this song like December 1st to make like it's a produced track and they're racing like Christmas albums come out in Halloween. But again, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of that. But the but this movie is egregious about saying, fuck you. Time makes no sense here. Like it's it's like because you will cut. From scene to scene, it seems like it's all happening, I guess, like within the week, but it is well, yeah. confounding. Two of these couples get engaged in one month. Two of these couples get engaged in one month. That is insane. John and Judy get engaged, and also Colin Firth and Aurelia, they get engaged in like one month, which is also not how time works either, right? I mean, I guess it's kind of how time worked in like movies that we used to... Select. Remember when we used to talk about this in like romantic comedies from the 30s? Yeah. How like how Catherine Hepburn would meet a guy and then they'd just like get engaged and go get married the next day. Yeah. I guess this is trying to bring back the classic romantic comedy in in that way, that this is a normal way of being. Are I we guess. the weirdos? I, is it weird to take time to get engaged? I, I don't know. There's so, there, there's just so, so much here. And we can get into the, and like I guess this is the conversation that we have to agree to have. Yes, we can pick apart some of the shit that really, really, is stupid, but I think it's interesting to get into these other ideas, these bigger ideas, which are much more like, wait, what? Like I can, I'll give, I'll give all into my rom-com mind and not question like simple, uh, you know, simple logic, but I will not give over to some of these larger issues. And, and, and the first one is for me, the way that they deal with Liam Neeson's dead wife. Like, okay, first of all, Emma Thompson is like, get over it. No one likes a wuss. And I guess she's being playful with him. Um, but it doesn't sound that it, playful. No, it's like, get over your dead wife. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and everyone's like amping him up. Like, oh, he's talking about Claudia Schiffer, Claudia Schiffer, Claudia Schiffer, Claudia Schiffer. And then he, and again, we didn't even break down this relationship because it's barely a relationship. Then he meets a woman who looks just like Claudia Schiffer. And he's like, now I'm in love with you. Wait, hold on. You didn't talk to her. She just looks like someone you like. She has no, she has no authority in this world. Like she basically is like, I'll see you again. Why? You have had no, nothing has connected any of these characters. And yet it's like, it's, like, it's the way that I used to think in, like, middle school. Like, I like that girl. She's going to like me. It's like, it's such a egotistical way of looking at love. It's like, it's a, so one-sided. But I, I found that the dealing with the death of this woman uh, to be really, I mean, I think Liam Neeson may have made it too good because the gravitas that he brings to, like, his grieving is so interesting, but yet the the way that he's so lax with his son, stepson, is so light. It's like, 
this boy just lost his mother. And you're like, what's your problem? Oh, he's in his room. It's like, help him a little bit. Like, you know, they're laughing at him. Like, oh, your life is over. Hmm, my, my, my wife dies. Like, yeah, so does his mom. Like, it's a weird, like the, like the levels are off. It's constantly like, just like, I'm like, why is this level up so high and this level is down so low? I don't, I don't, I mean, mi- I doesn't, yeah. I wonder how long they were married. Like, because she has a full grown, you know, a foolish yeah, grown son. He's like, what, 11, I think. I think the actor's 13 playing 11. So, you know, I don't know who his dad was or why his dad doesn't want custody. Come back, yeah. Maybe he's a widow. Maybe she was a widow. Who knows? Maybe it's like a whole chain of like widows marrying widowers here in this world. But like... Whatever the case, maybe they got married like a year ago or something, and they barely he barely knows the kid. Could that make sense? But, and I that's mean, why but, he's but like, I guess the, we bro down together. But where's the like the human like where's the human spirit? Because I mean, they also set up in the movie that he had a long time to prepare for her death, and I think that was a line that was kind of thrown in. Like, yeah, 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 I've been grieving for a while. So, uh, the th- like two weeks later, when I meet Claudia Schiffer lookalike. I'm going to be okay. Cause like he said, like we had a long time to prepare for this and she gave me different rules that I was, I had to do for the funeral. So even if he met her within a year, it's like, (sighs) maybe, yeah. Did he, did he marry her because she was dying to get to the kid? I mean, that, that, that is honestly to me, like, I know we can break down all the stalker bullshit in this movie, but that to me, I'm like, what are we trying to do here? Just well, make it a single dad with a son, with the wife. You don't have to make her fresh. You don't have to make her corpse, you know, super fresh. Out of, you know, it's like she literally is freshly dead. And what? everyone's not giving him space or helping him or even cooking meals for the guy. No, I mean, I think that, like, I think that Emma tells him that people hate sissies, like, a week after she dies. And, and also... To make it a little weirder, the woman in the picture that we see at at the funeral was actually like a woman that Richard Curtis knew that he thought was just really pretty. She was she's a filmmaker herself, but she's not an actress. And he just asked her if she would be the dead woman. I think it sounds like a woman that he kind of had a crush on. And he was like, will you just send me a bunch of beautiful pictures of yourself to play the dead woman in this movie? I mean, it feels a little bit creepy that I get the sense that this is a woman that Richard Curtis had a crush on. And he was like, give me pretty pictures of yourself. You will be this dead woman here. I will be the real life Andrew Lincoln. And I will say that maybe sounds like kind crazy talk. However, um, Richard, Richard Curtis is also a man who, when he was younger, had a crush on a girl, just a crush as far as I know, who like never dated him and wound up marrying a man named Bernard. And in every single movie he has ever done, he has written a jerk character named Bernard. The Bernard character in this movie is Emma Thompson's son, who most of his stuff was cut out, which I definitely want to get into because his stuff is amazing. But his name was Bernard and he was like a terrible son. There's a moment where like she's joking around um, with with her husband and she's like, well, at least we have one good kid meeting the girl. But really, some woman that didn't date you marries another man and you punish that man forever by using his name as a jerk. I will believe that there are there's a lot of anger in this film. There's a well, lot of anger yes. actually in well, Love Actually. By the way, uh, actually is said 22 times in this film. Um, you know, now that you say this, it actually clarifies something for me. I wonder if like all these male characters are just avatars for Richard Curtis because what you're describing is very much Andrew Lincoln's character. Andrew Lincoln goes to photograph the wedding. Um, you know, of his best friend and basically makes like a Yank Bank reel for Kira Knightley. Like, 
By the way, it's not even like, they're not even like super beautiful shots. It's really close-ups on her eyes and lips. And I mean, it. it's like, I know people get all bent out of shape about the cue cards, like in that being stalkery. But that to me is scarier. Like a guy just making a video, like... Like on well, eyes and nose and mouth. I'm like, ooh, boy. Well, I will boy. say, like, I mean, based on the art in Andrew's gallery, which is all just, like, pictures of dicks and pictures of boobs and pictures of butts, she, it, we're very lucky that his wedding video of her wasn't just her boobs. But I want to say you are absolutely on the right track. Like, Andrew Lincoln, who actually plays that character, gave an interview once where he said that Emma Freud, Emma Freud was the script editor on Love Actually. She is also... The partner of Richard Curtis knows Richard Curtis very well, knows things about Richard Curtis. Like the only reason that he called Colin first character Jamie is so that the kids in that one scene could say, I hate Uncle Jamie as like an elbow to his brother. Wow. Um, Emma Freud went up to Andrew and told him during the cue card scene that this is the closest character to Richard that he has ever written. So you are exactly on the mic. Wow. Well, okay. And I think... There is something really interesting about this relationship with Kira Knightley. And I know she's 18, but I, I think let's just ag- ignore that because it's not like part of the story that, you know, she's po- probably playing up uh, a little bit um, in her age, I guess. I don't know. But I don't I don't feel like that's a major part of the story. But I will say that when she watches that video, the way that she responds to it again I'm going to go out and say that I think these actors are doing a damn fine job. Like, Keira Knightley walks this line of being oblivious, complimented, freaked out, and then, like, that is a hard scene to play that because that's straight up creepy. And the only reason why Andrew Lincoln is not viewed as a super creep in this movie is purely because of her reactions. And her reactions are not based in reality at all. Like if you saw that and you're like, my best, my husband's best friend is like, like has a crush on me, but not even has a crush on me. Like is, this is disturbing. This is like serial killer footage I'm watching of myself. Oh, I think it's it's a little bit more romantic than that. But you're right. Really? You think that's romantic? Well, more romantic She's getting than serial married. Killer. It's more romantic than serial killer. That that was our boundary, right? It's more romantic than serial killer. It, sure. I think I am giving him a lot of credit for it not being footage of her boobs, although she is wearing that really fuzzy. I sweater. mean, Amy, that like but, that like like footage of her boobs is like, I I I, I think I'm more. It's like, but I, boobs I, yes, would I'm not, be yeah. in keeping. Boobs would be in keeping with this movie, which is why right, right, right. Which is yeah. why I'm, I get, I'm yeah. touched by that concession. I do think that shot of Kira's face is amazing. I think Kira Knightley is. Really one, she has been like such a slow burn in becoming one of my favorite actors. She's mm-hmm. wonderful. She's in a very twisted movie that just came out um, right now called Silent Night, which I recommend if you're looking for like a really screwed up Christmas film to stream. Oh, interesting. It's basically about a bunch of like rich jerks who get together for a fancy Christmas party in the British countryside. But the thing is, is that there's a poison gas cloud coming and that the British people have all been giving a, given a suicide pill that they have to take that night so that they don't die a painful death in this poison gas cloud. Um, and everybody's just very mean and they get really drunk and they're like wasting basically their last night together. But she holds that film together. I think she's just a marvelous actress. Like her face is so expressive and thoughtful all the time, even in this scene. So it's like you go with that character and with the way that, that her relationship with this guy has been like, I think 
turned into being seen as kind of a sweet romance, as creepy as it is. She it, kisses him, Amy. She the kisses kissing him. him. The kissing him is the thing because that just makes it weirder. It's like you're. It's like having a dog and it poops on your rug and you give it a treat. That's a really bad idea. Well, and also, yeah. Richard Curtis knows that this is kind of creepy because like in his house, when she barges into his house with Pi to get her wedding video... You see that Richard Curtis shows us that this guy owns a VHS tape of Rear Window, which has to be Richard Curtis saying, I know this guy is a bit of a creep. But, All he, right, gets, so, but he gets kissed yes. at the end of it anyway. And like, what does that mean? All right. So I'm, I'm going to reveal something. I wasn't going to reveal it until the end, but I feel like it's worthy of bringing up. So I did my very deep internet dive to find it, but I did watch the Love Actually sequel the 15-minute short film that Richard Curtis made for Red Nose Day in the UK in 2017 or 2018. What it's very is hard Red to find. Red Nose Day? Actually, Red Nose Day started by Richard Curtis. Uh, so that's an interesting connection and probably a reason why this cast got together and the four weddings and a funeral cast got together. He uh, started Comic Relief and that became Red Nose Day. And Red Nose Day has kind of grown and grown in popularity. And it's it's a giant event that takes place, I believe, in March of every year. So it's uh, it's an amazing organization. And that and, actually, I think, has more heart than love actually itself. So that that shows a lot of real world heart. And what they do and what's really interesting about Red Nose Day in the difference between the States and the UK is like people actually come and make these weird things like for Red Nose Day, because they know it's for charity. They got the whole cast or most of the whole cast together uh, for this Love Actually sequel. They did like a four weddings and a funeral like sequel. And, you know, they, it's it's very light. It's sketch. It's sketch light. But you get to see where all these characters are like the Love Actually characters 14 years later. And like what Richard Curtis wants of these characters 14 years later is so upsetting. Like, so the scene that opens up the whole movie is, is Andrew Lincoln coming back to Keira Knightley's house, uh, knocking on the door and doing the cue cards again. And, you know, still flirting with her and then revealing, Hey, remember when I said I was going to get married to one of these like models again, models that, that they are the, the apex of what love is. Um, he's like, well, here she is. And he like reveals he's married to Kate Moss and Kate Moss is like there for the ride. And I know it's a good sketch, so I'm not going to break it down too much, but it is like, it's so funny that like he finally found love with Kate Moss. And it seems like these characters haven't seen each other since the end of love actually. So it's like his best friend and him, they don't know what, like, I mean, even the fucking sketch, which I guess they just needed to do the cue card bit again. But, like, even the sketch, like, is like, ah, fuck it. Who gives a shit? Like, they, they, of course they don't see it. You're, you've never seen your best friend in 14 years. And then this is, a, like, you weren't at the wedding? You're like, Keira Knightley, you didn't show up to that wedding? Like, this didn't, this didn't happen? I mean, and then and then he'd have to say, like, hey, by the way, I was a real weird stalker dick uh, to Keira Knightley uh, 14 years ago. I'm going to go back to her house, recreate that, and you're going to come with me. Would you like to do that? And and then the cue cards are guessing things that Keira Knightley, they would have to pre-plan what the cue, <laughs> like the cue cards are so written out that now it doesn't even make sense. Like, it's... It's so <laughs> stupid. It's so stupid. And I get it. You got to do the fucking cue cards, but at least have a little bit more like something. Do it a little bit better. Do something like, I don't know. But luckily, Keira Knightley and Chiwetel are still together very happily or well, kind of happily. But also like 
I will say this. Why should we even root for Kira Knightley and Shiwatel Ejiofor to be together? Because like they get married, I guess, at the beginning at this wedding where there's a bunch of secretive people playing saxophone. They don't notice that they don't recognize half the people at their own wedding. They never have a conversation that we actually feel like we should care about them either. In fact, the one thing we know about Shiwatel Ejiofor is that he hates carol singers. Like the doorbell <laughs> rings. She tells him that carol singers are there. He tells them to bugger off. He hates people who sing at his doorstep. So like, you know what? I'm not invested in his happiness either. He sounds like a real jerk too. I mean, the fact that he wouldn't come down to watch carol singers is aggressive. Like, again, like, like how often is it happening that you don't have any interest in seeing it? And and was that a good plan? And not only, well, I mean, yeah. again, I could get does, into the logic wait, yeah. of it. Does Mark know him enough to know that he hates Carol Singer? Did a Carol Singer like run over his mom? And is that why he's so screwed up in the head? But he has, he has to, he can't even just like not come down. He has to tell his newly wife to go tell Carol Singers to fuck off, essentially. Which, which he does like, in the sequel as well. They're like, oh, they're collecting money for Red Nose Day. He's like, ah, give him a quid and tell him to fuck off. Just, they just cut he's to, a real yeah. asshole. He's like Scrooge. What's wrong oh, with he's him? He's giving a quid, though. He's giving a quid. What um, is a quid? Is that five? Pounds? I don't know. Yeah, it's probably, it, look, it's, it, felt, it felt generous, but not too generous. Um, they just cut to him a lot more because he's a lot more famous now. All right, so. I can tell you all the forward-facing things that happened, and because I watched the whole thing, the only person that didn't show up was Emma Thompson, and she uh, said that she didn't want to do the sequel because of her relationship with Alan Rickman, and and how could you do how could you do like a continuation of that story with Alan Rickman not being there? And I thought that actually was probably the most tasteful thing uh, that that both movies have done uh, because Bill Nye did not have that issue. Bill Nye gets in there and is like, they're like, where's your manager friend? He's like, he's fucking dead. He's a fat man with a fat heart and he fucking died. Oh, <laughs> like, but he's oh, actually but... not even dead. He's actually very what? much alive. He is? <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, what? Yeah. No, no they just made him dead. I don't Wait, know. they brought back everybody. They brought back the little girl. They brought back the little, because the boy, the boy falls in love with the little girl and like she asks him to marry her uh, and, and also know, Liam Neeson doesn't mar- seem yeah. yeah Liam Neeson hasn't seen his son like he's like oh you've grown up so much I was like wait how many years have you like abandoned this boy like you you don't you haven't seen him so you're like you've grown <laughs> so like it seemed like Liam Neeson's character hadn't seen his son since the movie ended his and that was troubling his stepson his stepson of course well you don't have to see his stepson but, you, know, right. you, you do have to traditionally ask a stepfather if you can get if you can marry his son <laughs> But you know what? I guess that the logic of like asking for permission makes sense when Colin Firth has to go to Portugal to ask like that dad if he could marry like his Portuguese daughter. And then the dad thinks he's selling the other daughter, which is like, ta-da, a total joke because she's bigger. She's too fat. She's too fat. No one will want to marry a nobody fat girl. I um, mean, oh, I hate that. And you know what I'm saying that is, uh, you know, just the, the movie has a very anti-fat bias and it's bizarre. It is it is bizarre because I think the movie is trying to show all different types of people. But the one thing that unites them is that everyone it can slam each other's appearances. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. Like once you start listening for it, that's all they say. Like you can't say something nice to anybody in this movie. You can't even have a real conversation longer than 10 seconds in this movie without somebody saying something mean. Usually that you're fat, sometimes that you're dumb, but it really is kind of like a an entire film based around this idea of like negging. There's something in this film that makes me wonder if like the entire culture was still going completely insane after 9-11, where they're both like 
horny all the time and also very angry. Like horny and angry seems to be like the mood that unites most people in this. Well, they want to yeah. have sex, but they also want to be mean to people, but they want to be just nice enough that they can have sex, but then be like, you're an asshole. Just kidding. You're fat. Let's have sex. I love you. You're also fat, but I still love you. Let me pitch you an idea here, because as we're talking about this, I think we're talking about a lot of tropes in rom-coms that you forgive because you're invested in the characters, right? You you buy into certain things and you you don't question things. But this movie is like watching a great magician do the same trick over and over again. And like the only thing that changes is the color of the handkerchiefs, right? So it's like, oh, I've made these handkerchiefs come out of my hand. And the first time you're like, oh, that's really impressive. And then the second time, oh, they're different. Okay. Oh, that's longer. That's shorter. And what we're seeing is that the same trick over and over. So it almost, in a way, when you start to deconstruct it, you start to see all the sloppiness that rom-coms have to be to work, right? Like you are okay with Lloyd Dobler standing out in front of her house with a boom box over his head. That's cute in the moment. But if you do like, if you have three characters in the movie doing three creepy things and you're like, oh wait, huh? Like, you know, it's like, it starts to like amplify on some level. And I think this is my issue with the movie because this movie is I believe it is well-constructed. I will fall for it. Like, when Hugh Grant is dancing around to the Point of Sisters, yeah, I think it's cute. I'm in. Like, I actually like hate that scene. Really? And so does Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant thought it was, like, too jokey. And oh, I really? Kinda, but he I did it for the too... fucking sequel. He danced to Drake, Hotline Bling, Ugh. jumped right back in, and then made it almost, that made me uncomfortable. Like, pulling his, oh, I pulled the joint, and then he falls down the... Falls Ugh. down the stairs, Amy. Ugh, I hate he that kind of comedy. Down the it's stairs. too big. It's too big. Also, how weird is it, is it that he's like living at the prime minister's mansion? He is the prime minister. You get to see the wall of prime ministers. You get to yeah. see like Tony Blair's face is up there in the stairway as he's dancing down. But they never put his face up there. They're just like ignoring the fact that he is prime minister in his own house. He doesn't do you, have his do own you, picture in his house. But don't they do that after you leave? I mean, it's like Obama's presidential portrait wasn't revealed until afterwards right i mean like, well yes and no like i mean what we know in red nose day is he did leave and then he like yes got reelected, so they never put him up that time either oh oh i, I see what you're saying it's not there in the second one <laughs> yeah well it's not there ever i mean in the first one i could say i guess he did just move in sure but like in red nose day they're still refusing to acknowledge that he was ever prime minister on the wall all right so all right do you don't like this dancing scene i Again, this is the scene where I'm not going to call out the logic that he's listening to the radio in his room and then he dances around the house as if it's being pumped through Sonos speakers. Sonos speakers, great speakers, no longer an ad supporter of us, but you know what? We love those speakers. Uh, but uh, I don't think they're an ad supporter of any podcast, but uh, I'll tell you this much. That like so in that moment, like I'm just like those are the things that like get me in a rom-com. I'm like, I love it. I'll watch you, Grant, jump around and be cutie, you know, and and. All the father-son stuff like got me with, you know, uh, like there are these like nuggets that are fun and maybe in a larger movie. Like apparently this was supposed to be two different movies. He had a Colin Firth movie and a Hugh Grant movie. And he realized, oh, my gosh, these plots are the same. Let me put them in the same movie. And then I guess all he decided was let me put six other plots that are almost the same. <laughs> like if I got two that are the same let me get a baker's dozen in there and then we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Like it's 14. Almost... 14. His original script for this had 
14. Plus. There's a whole story that's cut out, like the, the headmistress of the school. That is a completely cut out. Like that's a, a, a gay relationship. I guess in my mind, why would you cut out the one thing that's a little bit different? Like that's the thing I really have an issue with is like this movie is a lot of sameness. Yeah. Okay. Well, we know everything that he's cut out because like not only has he give, talked about it in interviews, but he has put some of the clips online. Some of the stuff he cut out and never filmed, some of the stuff he did film and cut out. Some of the things that he never filmed, he had a whole subplot in here about a girl who was in a wheelchair and like what her love life was like. Oh, wow. He had another subplot about two schoolgirls who were also in love. Um, he didn't cut, he never ended up filming that story. He had this whole really toxic story that I'm kind of surprised he didn't film about a guy who's like obsessed with a girl and so he decides to record a whole album about how much he is in love with her. And then he invites her to the studio on the day he records it. But as he's recording his bit in the two hours that he's in the booth, she goes off and has sex with the drummer. Seems like that would fit in this movie perfectly. Doesn't record yeah, it. Weird. Then he I mean, women are so badly sh like women are too like they say it at certain points. Like I feel like they're they are to be fucked like that like like it's like there is just like there's a moment where like bill nye and i know it's part of his character and i like him in the in the movie but like he's like there's a bunch of women there with open mouths as if like, <laughs> like what the fuck like the only real like it's like that's how everyone views women like they are not to be heard <laughs> they are not to be they are not to be spoken to they are just they're just to be to be, uh, you know, you insert yourself into them. Like, like, like there is very little of that. Like, I, I don't even know. I don't yeah. even. I, I mean, like you know. Lindy West, our guest that we're going to have on later. Yeah. She, she wrote in her essay, she wrote, this is a movie that says the more a woman talks, the less lovable she is. Because <laughs> all of our characters that we actually get to know better, like Eva Thompson and Laura Linney wind up alone and sad. Whereas Denise Richards is great. Walks in, gives people kisses, everything's great, she's hot, we're fine. But back to the two things that he did film that didn't make it in the movie. So part of what happened with the deleted subplot about the headmistress is that he had this whole giant part about the shitty Bernard, who is Emma Thompson's son. And so like shitty Bernard is being like a terrible kid this whole movie. Um, she's really annoyed at him. That scene where like her daughter tells her that she has to be a lobster for Christmas in the full cut of the movie, he like pans away from the daughter in that scene to a whole scene with the son about how terrible the son is. So then Emma Thompson gets called into the headmistress's office and um, the headmistress is mad because her son has written this essay for Christmas and where the topic is supposed to be, what would you want for Christmas if you could have anything? And this is what the kid wrote. She's making Emma Thompson read it, but we can hear the kid's voice. Extremely hard about what I would wish for at Christmas. But after long consideration... You misspelled consideration. Sorry. Right. After long consideration, I've decided this is my Christmas wish. That if for one day you could see people's farts. Can you imagine anything more fun? You get to the end of a huge Christmas meal and your grandmother lets rip. <laughs> and at last, for once, she can't blame the dog. You go to church and for the first time ever, it's fun. And here is Eva Thompson's reaction to her son. This it actually brings them closer together. I'm sorry too, Bernie. Sorry and ashamed and embarrassed that I have put you in a school with such total and utter 
tricks that they don't get a good gag when they see one. I mean, look, this, this is high-class comedy. This, this is first-rate stuff. Look, you're my son, and obviously I have to love you. But right now, I really love you. <laughs> but because they deleted this whole plot for some reason, then Richard Curtis had to delete his like side thing, which was going to be like this romance with the headmistress. Here's him talking about it. And then here's a little bit of like the clip of her love story. Um, but obviously when we'd lost the bit with Em and her uh, son, uh, we couldn't do this because the idea was meant to be that you just casually met this very sort of um, uh, stern headmistress and who you would just think, well, there's a stern headmistress. And the idea was meant to be that later on in the film, 15 minutes later, we suddenly fell in with the headmistress and you realise that no matter how unlikely it seems that any character that you come across in life has their own um, complicated uh, tale of love. But the essay was excellent. Well, to be honest, it did have its amusing side. His Christmas wish was to see people's farts. <laughs> Bravo! That's my Christmas wish, too. Basically, it's like three minutes, her partner dies, and then at the very end, at like the whole Christmas pageant, Emma Thompson, you know, looks at her alone in the audience and like bonds with the headmistress and is like, you know, we're proud of you for coming here and we respect your strength. It, that was it. That was like one of the other, that was like his attempt at having a long-term partnership also in this movie, except for the one other thing he did, which is, I would say, even more insane than an essay all about Christmas farts, which is a love story that doesn't even take place in England. It doesn't even play, take place in France, like where we are with, um, with Colin Firth. It is apparently... Okay, do you know what, like... Alan Rickman's job is this office where like Mia, the sexy lady works and like Laura Linney works. No, do you know I don't what know what they do. Okay. It's a little bit vague, but what they do, if you really look at the, at the posters in the background is that they are like a graphic design kind of company, like a visual company that makes posters, sad pictures of people in Africa to promote like charities about human trafficking. It's very Ooh. weird, but if you like freeze some of the images, you can see posters in the background of that are like pictures of like people in Africa and the words are sort of like, you can help them or help or blah, 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 blah. That's what their company does when they're not like having, you know, sexual harassment lawsuits where like he's actually saying like, hey, here in this office, I really recommend you avoid Kevin. Find a venue, overorder on the drinks, bulk buy the guacamole and advise the girls to avoid Kevin if they want their breasts unfondled. So in this office with these posters everywhere that give away that this is supposed to be like, you know, a human rights oriented office, Richard Curtis shot a couple of scenes where he looks at one of the posters and then zooms in and the posters come to life. And when Whoa. they come to life, the people in Kenya, which is where these scenes were shot, are having their own conversations about love. And they are as demented as anything else in the film. This one is subtitled, but I want to play it for you. I can see from your face, Paul, that you have not seen this deleted clip. No. I think we should just read the subtitles aloud, if that is okay by you. Yeah. As we're doing this scene, by the way, I want you to imagine a couple, their young son, their young son is shirtless, standing in front of a field of barren crops that make it clear they will not have food to survive. Come on. There's nothing more you can do today. 
I feel like I've let you down. Don't be stupid. As long as I can see a grin on that ugly face of yours, everything's fine with me. <laughs> we have to leave. If we have to, we have to. Where do you think we should go? I hear Paris is very nice this time of year. So the cure is they should move to Paris. I mean... <laughs> yeah. All right. But well, look again. Well, look, I mean, I remember that movie Babies, uh, which is kind of an amazing movie where they it's a documentary about how people raise babies all around the world uh, and, and the differences and the similarities. And there is something really interesting to do this movie and do it from a worldwide perspective. Right. But it seems to be like. And look, I like this and I bond with this. Like one of the things I really liked in the Love Actually redo was Colin Firth and his Portuguese wife. They now have three kids and a lot of their repartee is kind of like shitting. Well, she shits on him and it's a it's kind of a cute thing or, it, you know, I, I thought it was like I like I buy their bond. And I think the same thing in that scene. I buy that bond. I don't buy that point of view, especially coming from Richard Curtis, who does Red Nose Day, which is about poverty and in, in the and especially in third world countries and, and things like that like it's like way, uh, okay i mean it's like it's like but i mean i feel like every, as long as you call somebody ugly or stupid you know you're okay i mean i'm also curious about how rufus you know the bagger rowan atkinson was going to be an angel like what that was supposed to be was the angel supposed to be like preventing uh alan rickman from getting the necklace yeah, he and was supposed to take so long filling up the bag that Alan Rickman wouldn't be able to, like, give his mistress a present. And then he was supposed to, when he shows back up again at the end as the kid is trying to get through 9-11 security, he was supposed to um, disappear as soon as the child was able to slip through the guards to, like, ap- disappear so that you would know that he was actually an angel. Which, by the way, one last deleted scene. Please, people need to go find this. There is a second version of the little kid's airport scene where he's like Uh running through the airport. Uh, Apparently, according to Richard Curtis, the kid in earlier versions of the script had a special skill. In the original draft of the movie, there were lots of mentions about the fact that Sam, the little boy, was a brilliant gymnast. And you casually saw him when he was very sad, being brilliant at, at, at gym, sort of doing double twists and turns and not getting any joy out of it at all. I will say when you watch this airport scene, here's how the kid gets to the girl in the deleted version. He does a triple somersault. He does six cartwheels. He does two backflips. He does a full parallel bar routine in the airport. And then he lands down and is able to seduce his love with a hello. And and also, I love the idea that this movie comes very close to saying, I guess like the war on terror reminded us that we should all love each other. But also because of the war on terror... Because of the security at airports, now we can't have love unless you, like, do something illegal where, honestly, that kid would definitely be arrested by the end of this. And he, like, somehow also knows all the secret back routes of the airport, which is very suspicious. Especially for a kid, yeah. Very suspicious. And the security guards are doing a very bad job protecting all of us because they're watching Bill Nighy take off his pants on TV instead of, like, catching this kid. By the way, when did he do that? When did he do that? Like, he promised that if he became number one, he would perform the song live on TV naked. And what we see is, get the phone call live on Christmas Eve night when everyone in the UK is working. Like, they are, like, there is so much work going on and there's no deadlines to meet. Like, nothing has been set up like, oh, you got to work Christmas Eve. Like, what kind of fucking Scrooge world is this? And I know the UK is 
takes Christmas very seriously. Like, like everyone's working and you're having a school performance on Christmas Eve? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is not... And I know that's like a bullshit thing that happens in movies, but... Fuck all of that. It's like Nakatomi. I don't even, Nakatomi didn't even happen on Christmas Eve. It was a Christmas party. And the and the girl, she's leaving for the States on Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah. What better way to spend uh, Christmas Eve into Christmas Day on an international flight? A child. Like, what is going on in this movie? I mean, it is. And it's wild. But I want to go back to this Bill Nye thing. Bill Nye or Nye is, you know. I'll I'll do it naked. I'll do it live. We see him get the phone call. We see him, you know, after the post Elton John party, which is a party. And then we cut to much later after he's agreed to watch porn with his buddy, because that's what buddies do. They get drunk and they watch porn together. Um, then we see it on TV. So, like, when did that live performance happen? After he was watching porn with his manager in that shitty place? Like, was he trying like, to get himself pumped up so he'd really show the TV audience something? I mean, I, again, I don't want to like fully rip it all to shreds, but I mean, that one is, that's another one where it's like, you can't just show every part of this guy's story and then go, oh yeah, then he also performed live that night too. I mean, it makes for a moment where everyone's got to be. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it just it I mean, drives me crazy. That said, Bill Nighy, I would say of all the characters in this movie, comes across the best because well, he's, he's yeah. a piece of shit, but he is an honest piece of shit. And that is why everybody loves her. Like Billy, Bill Nye, in a way, I feel like this movie presages cancel culture because everybody in this movie does things that you would be canceled for today, except the fact that he is the most outrageous one makes him kind of this un- pre pre-cancel culture, uncancelable figure. Everybody loves him because he calls his own album a festering turd. And there's something that this movie is saying inadvertently and almost psychically about the year, you know, that we are all living in today about how this is the kind of person that can survive and outlast and live. And that if you are a person who knows you are terrible and just keeps saying it, then people will love you. As opposed to all of these other people in the movie who are terrible, but say that they are lovable and then also get love, but then their love makes you feel really creeped out. I respect that Billy Mac is a definitive cad. Good for him. Well, you know, Billy Mac, I like Billy Mac and I like that character. And again, it's and I love hard Nye's because performance. this is an interesting thing. You, you were talking about these deleted scenes. And I'm going to guarantee you that every one of those deleted scenes did not have a giant celebrity in it. And... um. And because of that, that's why they're deleted, right? And we keep in all the people we love. And everybody in this movie, I think, across the board, is beloved. Like, and it may be because of this movie, it may not be. But you look at this cast list, and it's just Hugh Grant, Emma Thompson, Liam Neeson, Keira Knightley, Alan Rickman, Colin Firth, Bill Nighy, Andrew Lincoln, Laura Linney, Martin Freeman. Uh, you know, it's like the list goes on and on and on. It's like, it's, it's, you know, 20 people that ever, like when you look at them, you feel good about yeah. them. So I think you Some get all this goodwill. Some of them becoming even more famous afterwards, which is like this movie yeah. was a benediction. So you get this, like you get this goodwill from them. And I think you, I think what I like about his character, the Billy Mack character is that he's talking about the crash commercialization of the holidays. And I think in a way by becoming number one and love actually becoming a huge hit, it's the same thing. Like, if these are all avatars for Richard Curtis, Richard Curtis has created a crass, like, I'll make a fucking Christmas movie for you. I'll make a romance. I'm going to hit all the beats. I'll make you cry because if you leave this movie and you're crying, it was a great movie. Any movie you leave that you cry, it was a great movie. And 
And I, I believe that. I do believe that. Like, if you if it gets you by your heartstrings, as you as if that's the last moment, you're gonna walk out and say it was a great movie because you're emotionally connected to it. You know, and I, I think I get that they're that, the same Jerry, because, like, even that song that he's singing, this remake of "Love Is All Around Me." I mean, that is a song that Richard Curtis used in Four Weddings and a Funeral that then hit number one for weeks in England because of Four Weddings and a Funeral. That is associated with Richard Curtis. So for Richard Curtis to take a song that he is connected to. And then, like, fuck with it, make it a terrible cover version. Yeah. Like, it's deliberately an awful, awful cover version that does but feel like But it goes a number one. And yeah. you kind of, and, and I think that there is something interesting about that. Like, yeah. not to make it like everything is meta, but I do think that there, that is such an aggressively different plot point. And I do think that if we we're looking at these are the shades of Richard Curtis, we're just having to see all the shades at once. As a young man, he probably just wanted to go to the States and get laid. You know, uh, as a, a, you know, maybe a, a younger man, he was in love with a girl who didn't love him back. You know, as an older man, you know, he uh, knows like what he's doing is, you know, we talked about this, like wrestling with the commercialization of his art. You know, like, like there's all these elements. I think that's genius. I mean... I, th- I think you've actually really hit something on the head here that like no one romantic comedy that Richard Curtis has ever done could contain the multitudes of his conflicting ideas about love and happiness and expose his dark side, which in a way I would say is very brave of Richard Curtis. We are not always our best selves in love. Actually, I would say we are not always our best selves in infatuation. Infatuation makes no. people do crazy things. And I think if this movie had the self-awareness to know that it was about how infatuation makes people do crazy things, it would be incredibly incisive. Like this movie is close to being a brilliant film if it was just framed differently. Well, that's that's my issue. And we talked about this idea before, which is it is more about infatuation than it is love. Like love is really interesting. And I think the areas in which they touch on it when it's different feels so refreshing. Like I do like that end moment with Bill Nighy and the manager because I'm like, Oh, like he got the Christmas spirit in a way, or he got, which is to spend, you know, the holidays with those that you love. I think it's a very nice, unmaterialistic way to look at Christmas. And I think that that's what this movie is saying at the end, like be with the people that you love and that makes you happy. And I do like that ending. I think that ending is strong. I think what the other ones lack is that connection. Like, I don't know why you're running to go marry this person you never had a conversation with. I don't know why you did this, but that performance that he gives and the way he makes fun of the manager, but you see that this connection between the two of them, I, I feel like I buy, I buy that realization. He, you know, this person's been with him through thick and thin, Of course he wants to be with him. And I think that, too, is a bond that Richard Curtis understands because Bill Nighy has been in basically everything Richard Curtis has done since this movie. You know, like Richard Curtis gets like having a person that you like to work with and forming this partnership that like lasts. I mean, Richard Curtis is very loyal. Like most of the actors in here, many of them are like people he'd worked with in the past on different movies and he like cycles them back in. I mean, he basically made Hugh Grant's whole career. And so I think there is something in Richard Curtis that understands a loyalty, like a friendly professional or maybe very unprofessional, like given on how he writes like romance, uh, workplace, sexual problems that would get everybody sent to HR. But I think he, I think he understands that bond that like 
two men can have when they work together in a creative field. Maybe that's why it's great. Maybe it's also just that Bill Nye is amazing. I mean, even the way that Bill Nye holds his body as a rock star who's done too many drugs, you know, he seems to kind of like shove his neck all the way back inside like this scrawny turtle. Mm. You know, he's like crooked and he's stiff and he looks like he has been through like hell and back. Like he has treated his body terribly and he carries it all in just the way that he moves. Yeah, I think well, that's amazing. Like, I, I think that like they wanted a real rock star to do it, right? They wanted like David Bowie to do this part. You know, they I think they were circling a lot of like people in their mind. I don't know if they offered it, but they realized, oh well, if we get a real rock star, and then we have to deal with their song, and then we'd have to, you know, I think what they realized was we couldn't do this commentary with a real rock star because a real rock star wouldn't be as self aware as they wanted him to be, and I think that that's one of the things that he brings to that character and. And it does show, like, as much as we are slagging on this movie, that there are good characters here. There are good actors here. The motivations are weird, right? And and then when you see a real motivation, like when you see Billy Mack and his manager, I'm like, oh, I, I, yes, I understand this. This is good performances. I get this motivation. I'm, I feel completed at the end. Like, I like that relationship and it feels real to me. By the way, Talking about real rock stars, you know, when he goes on that pop show and he like sees that boy band's poster and he makes Mm -hmm. fun of them and he draws like we all have tiny wieners or something on the poster. I didn't realize that that is actually a real band. Like he did that to a real band that was real. Like the band is called Blue and he's like in this rivalry with Blue. I thought Blue was just like a made up Love Actually band where they took a picture of like a really ridiculous looking boy group and he was making fun of them for being young and making fun of them for being dumb. And then, yes, drawing that they like wieners on their heads. That actually is a real band. And I had no idea, but they have a strange history where like... This band called Blue was a big deal. They were about to break out in America in the fall of 2001. They flew to New York to film a music video. And while they were there, they saw the 9-11 attack happen. And then a month later, they were being interviewed about it. And one of the members of the band said, you know, that this, he said, quote, this New York thing is being blown out of proportion. What about whales? They are ignoring animals that are more important. Animals need saving. And that is more important. And because this guy in blue said that they lost their record deal in the States, which is why we have never heard of them, which is why that he's making fun of a band that we all thought was fake, but is actually a real band. Wow. That is a, that's a real journey there. (laughs) isn't it I also I mean speaking also of like real pop stars to me like the one sour note that makes me sad in the Bill Nighy performance is when he tells that joke about like having sex with Britney Spears that takes like a Mm -hmm. turn and then a turn where he's like well I had sex with Britney Spears just kidding just kidding she was awful and you're like oh man that really took me back into that mindset that we are talking about when we talk about this time period of when we thought it was okay just to like rag on girls and a rag on Britney Spears. And as soon as that joke came on, it just felt like a punch in the gut. Like you get this, watching this movie, I got this like horrible sense memory of how terrible this time period was. I mean- Oh, but but, but, but Amy, but Amy, don't worry about it because in the sequel, he does the same joke about the Kardashians. They ask him the same question and he says, oh, the Kardashians, but which one? I don't even know. Because women are holes that dudes stick their dicks Uh, in. That is it. I I mean, mean, to Bill Nye's credit, he has said that he regrets the Britney Spears joke, but that is how the movie feels. Like, I I mean. Just did it again. He just did it again. Two years ago. 
Well, there's that it. scene. There's that scene where like Emma Thompson is like shopping for toys for her daughter, and she says, "You know, the like the only doll choices for her daughter are this is her words quote transvestite and dominatrix. That is how it felt to be alive in 2003 mm-hmm. to be a woman. That it, this, I mean, honestly, I think I feel like she's looking at dolls the same way that Richard Curtis looks at women in this movie, and they're just sort of. But it's like she's doing it as a commentary on like what is happening in society, and Richard Curtis is like. Well, yeah, but that's just who women are, right? So it's fine. All right. Well, let's. You brought up Emma Thompson, and I think that Emma Thompson is another one of these storylines that is incredibly complex, and because it's so complex, it is way more engaging. What she does in this movie, in a very limited bit of screen time, as everyone has, um, she plays like the serious anchor of the film, and. I just want to know, like, what you think about that relationship, because I I don't know if I have a a firm idea, but like, what do you think happens to that couple? We see a month later, again, a month later, like he went away on a business trip a month. I mean, well, everyone went away on a business trip a month later. But uh, but anyway, they all come back. And in my mind, just do the year later. But anyway, what do you think is happening there? Like what what? Like, why is he upset? Is, Is he upset? Is he in a bad relationship? Like. That relationship is tricky because I think she gives it a lot more than on the page. But, you know, like, what are you seeing there? It's weird, right? I mean, like, she invests so much in that performance. And this film seems to invest so much in that plot line that it's weird that it never gets resolved. She's just like, now I have this choice of being with a man who I know also loves another woman. And and then it just ends like we don't actually ever get any follow up. And I think that's confusing. It's like you spend so much time and there's zero resolution for her. It feels kind of like a betrayal of how much time we spend getting invested in the storyline and in, in general. Like, I mean, Emma Freud, you know, who has who has been on Twitter continually ratting out her beloved Richard Curtis and like revealing things about this movie. She did say that in in Richard Curtis's mind. Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman stay together, but they are never, ever happy again, which is sad. Like when you go through and watch, uh, there are some deleted scenes of them together talking about their son. They're really charming together. There's like, there's a scene that gets deleted where she like goes with her son and Mia, the, you know, his sexy secretary to the art gallery that is once again, surrounded in like naked people. She actually even comments on it at one point. She makes a joke about how like there's a row of naked men who are all black in this image and you see everything. And in a nod to the hero of the last movie that we did, Little Shop of Horrors, she makes a joke uh, about a band. What's this one called? Christmas Vagina, I believe. And this one? That's Vagina 2. As in Vagina number 2 rather than Vagina also. Though, of course, it is also a vagina. Well... I think it's the best party venue ever. I particularly like the portrait of the four tops. <laughs> but, but even in that scene, you know, she's hanging out with her wife and her mistress, acting totally confident, acting like she loves her husband, telling well, like the mistress moment, like how lame it is. Yeah. And she's like telling like the she's telling his mistress how hard it is to be married, but making a joke like don't have kids, they'll ruin your life. Ha ha. Kissing her husband on the cheek. And it's like so heartbreaking seeing her be that confident in her relationship. And then to know that the movie never follows up. But yes, according to Richard Curtis, they stay together, but they're miserable. It's tricky, right? Because I want to look at that relationship just for a second. And 
like we talked about earlier, that love is different. That love that you have had for a long time, you've had kids with, you've seen them through everything. And I think what the movie does is it doesn't really walk on either side of the line. It, it, it kind of... It kind of walks down the middle, and I think it makes it confusing. What story are we watching here? Because I think, in a way, it's Richard Curtis saying, well, it's okay to look, but then he got caught. And getting caught looking, I mean, and looking, I mean, he got her a necklace and stuff. But getting caught looking then means like, oh, she couldn't get over that. I just was looking. I mean, he was, you know, that there's an energy there that's like, well, like, I think he should have cheated on her. And they should have made a decision like we're going to rebuild or I'm unhappy. And the relationship is neither here nor there. It seems to me like the way that he plays it and the way that I think you're brought into it is like he just got caught up in a moment. Yes, there was a flirtation. He took it a step too far, but not that far. Never kissed her. Never did anything but dance with her right in front of his wife and gave her the necklace. And I get giving her the necklace, but... As far as things go, like Kira Knightley kissing, you know, Andrew Lincoln on the lips while her husband's upstairs and he's stalking her, that there's some stuff there too. Like, I don't know. I I just think it's like that's a very cynical point of view about love because it in a way makes both of them victims. It's like, well, they can't see eye to eye, and then that last moment in the airport, you feel this moment. You feel like this moment of like it's not there together, but it's not great. And I think I understand it because of that Joni Mitchell scene, which is a beautiful scene, where she's standing in the bedroom, the bed is empty, and she's looking at all the pictures of the kids and their life. And she's like, you made my life a joke. And you get in that moment, I think, her just saying, I can't leave him until the kids are out of the house. like that. And that's in my mind. That's where I go. But I also feel like... <sighs> It's also a pretty aggressive way to be with somebody you've been with for a very long time who ultimately, like, I don't even think it's an affair of the heart, right? I mean, or or, or am I wrong? Am I looking at it wrong? I'm I'm just trying to break that one down. Well, I think you're looking at it how the movie looks at it, which is... Which is it's, it doesn't actually tell you, which is really frustrating. Like, yeah. Like, for was it a performance that deep. Or, yeah. Was it a physical affair? Was it a love affair? Was it a flirtation where you bought her a necklace? According to Emma Freud, again, writing mm. out like what, what Richard Curtis meant, to Emma Freud, they definitely fucked. To Emma, okay. to Emma Freud, like it was consummated. But it's not really clear on screen. So we don't know. Because you're right. Like if it wasn't consummated, but it ruins their marriage anyway, that is harsh. Like, I feel like you could talk that through in therapy if you were so inclined, especially given the chemistry that they did have that also was sort of mostly cut out. But but we don't know. So it's very weird that this movie is over two hours long. They're one of the centerpiece stories and we have no idea actually almost any of the mechanics. Well, you want to make that choice. Like, why why would you not make that choice? And it's sort of like... Why would you not make a choice? He inserts a whole scene of like Mia taking off her clothes for no reason alone in her bedroom, but we don't actually know if they consummated it. That's weird. Well, to me, this is the problem with the movie is it's so surface level on what love is and the challenges of love. Whereas how interesting would it be to... See, like, because we're not even really clued in that he's out of love with her until a little bit later. Like, like, I think getting back together would be interesting or staying apart would be. But like, it's just 
it's just like a, a thumbnail portrait yeah. of this thing. And where the other ones you can kind of look at and go like, ha, huh, well, that's crazy. She doesn't speak English and he doesn't do this. And she's a, you know, she's his, brings tea and he's the prime minister. But this one is the one that the actors are just fantastic. And you look and I, and I leave and I'm, fr- I am decidedly frustrated by the ending of that because yeah. I, I want to know and, and tell me he slept with her but well, I think it's Richard Curtis saying I don't want to make him a bad guy I think he's protecting I think he's protecting Alan Rickman slightly and and by protecting him he's protecting himself like he's not making he's not a villain he, he yeah. could also be you know it's like and that sucks because and it's not like he's hitting on her she's sitting in front of him with her legs open what's right. the guy supposed to do she's like she's literally dressed as the devil Literally dressed as the devil. Like, what is the guy supposed to do? Show me how he's unhappy. Show me that she brings... Like, it's there's enough stuff that's not answered there that makes it very... I don't know. It just makes it frustrating. But do you know what he does instead, which I think makes it even weirder, is in this whole movie, he makes Emma Thompson wear a fat suit. Like, he doesn't actually explain what happens to her character or why she and her husband aren't getting longer, even if her husband falls out of love with her or if he's just, like, thinking with his boner for, like, a week. He doesn't get into that, but he made her wear a fat suit for this, as though if she looked a little bit chubbier, anything that happens to her is maybe understandable. And that's really screwed up. Yeah. Like, yeah. why does she have to be chubby for her husband to have sex with a ner- like with to have sex with his secretary? I mean, that who makes is it even more disturbing. In a devil's, I know it's screwed up. I mean, the only sign we have of how she feels is through looks, because that's I guess what he cares about most of all. When she's at the airport at the end, she has a new haircut. So maybe that means she's becoming a new person. Maybe to this movie, it means like, well, she's going to diet now and maybe fight to get her husband back. I don't know what the new haircut means, but he made her wear a fat Women, suit. Women, if you so lose like weight, you'll get your man. Something. Your man will not cheat on you if you lose some weight. Stay trim. I mean, it's such a, again, it's such a base level. And I think this is what we're really responding to, like a base version of love. Like love is all about like a body and not a relationship. And I think what makes it, again, I don't mean to repeat myself, but we don't see anything that makes their relationship even like, oh, they're not getting along. Like, oh, all we see is like he doesn't really like Joni Mitchell or like it's like he's a grump, but she doesn't seem to be grumpy either. Like there's something I would buy into if she's a grump to him. He's a grump to her and then is like flirting. So it's like she doesn't do any. I mean, not that you have to do anything wrong, but like. There's just nothing there to hold on to. And maybe because of the power of the actors, you want that. And I was equally mad when I watched the, the sequel of the movie to, you know, to see that she wasn't there. I, I appreciate why she did that. Uh, and I think it was good because I think it may have actually diluted some of the gravitas of that. But right? anyway. Because, because the ending you want to see is her like leaving him and maybe being like Colin Firth's next wife or something like that, you know. <laughs> Like when Colin Firth is ready to have a conversation with someone. Um, but no, but you can't do that without seeming like flip into the memory of Alan Rickman. As I know. Much as and this, his character kind of deserves it. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, 
Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I also just want to now circle to one more serious moment and Laura Linney, because what are we trying to say there? She's taking care of her brother who is in an institution. That's what we find out. And in the sequel, we'll get into that in a second, but the brother's in, in, in an institution and she's always by the phone. And what we're showing is she's delaying her life for taking care of this, her brother, right? Like she feels this tremendous guilt. And I think that there's, that's something so relatable to so many people who have, uh, you know, family members that they have to care for. And I love that. It's such a dire outcome for her in the movie. Like you said, the guy that she likes just kind of walks off. And yeah, and in I all don't of this time, he's never known. And it seems like kind of a fixable thing. Like she could be like, well, I'm sorry I had to answer the phone for my brother, but I, I also like you. And he could be like, I'm a human being who understands that you have other people in your life. I am a grown up who can talk to you about this and we can work through it. Like, well, it shouldn't you, be a deal killer if we're supposed to root for them in the first place. But the well, fact to, that he walks yes. away, you're like, well, then obviously that's a shitty match. Well, and I'll say this. I think the movie also makes this is where the movie makes these weird choices. It's so much more interesting if the brother lives in the house with her. Right. Yeah. She really has to take care of him because that phone call that he's making to her late at night after the Christmas party, like he's in a hospital like granted like i don't know what the rules are there but he's making a late night phone call there are people there to take care of him so what he's saying in a way is she, she's at fault she is not only taking care of him but she doesn't know when to stop taking care of him and i think a lot of people that i talk to who are taking care of a, a sick relative or family member they're often in the same space like this person's in a place where he is being cared for. So by her picking up the phone, this is before we know all this, by her picking up the phone twice, three times, it's her fault, right? It's like where if they lived in the house together, she couldn't be able to separate herself. Like, And there, there is a, a this story there. Like sometimes she's got to learn, and this is something that I, I've seen firsthand. I can't take care of this anymore by myself. I need help. She's got the help and she's still delaying her life. So that to me is also a very mixed message. Not to say that you have to abandon anyone who's there, but in that moment, she's the problem. It's not the brother. The brother is fine. He's safe. You know, he's, he, you know, maybe having a freak out, but he's surrounded by doctors and people taking care of him. Like, and again, not all the time. But in this one moment where she's about to have joy, she seems like, oh, she's she seems like she's the problem, if that makes sense. And I know what you're saying, too. Like the other guy is a piece of shit for that. But it is an odd thing. Like, what are we saying there? But yet it doesn't feel like the movie is commenting on either of these two things. It feels like the movie is just saying, well, that was her one shot of love. And now she doesn't get one. Until the sequel (laughs) where she's dating Patrick Dempsey. Good for you. And the brother's not even mentioned. And the brother's not even like (laughs) alluded to. (laughs) Well, because you can't have both. Like, what? Uh, It's just so crazy. I mean, it's just a a weird mixed message. Yeah. But so, talking about all of this, then, when did you cry? What are the three points that you cried while rewatching this movie? Multiple times, multiple times. Um, I cry at like things that get me. Like, there are things that get me. Like, I. You know, I really did like the relationship between Liam Neeson and his son. That stuff has been getting me a lot lately. You know, as I I think I'm trying to like 
freeze time with my kids. I just love my time with my kids so much. And I just love, I, I just, you know, seeing the father, like send the kid through the airport. Like, I know that's insane, but I'm also like, I love that. He's like, we're going to get in the car and we're going to make this work for you. Like he's trying so hard to, to, to do well by his son. I, I think that, uh, I cried during the, the funeral montage of the, of Richard Curtis's, uh, girl that he's attracted to, uh, pretty pictures of her. I cried, you know, just like seeing Liam Neeson carry that coffin, uh, was pretty intense. I, I cried during the Joni Mitchell scene. Like, um, I thought that was like so beautifully done and, and so gut wrenching and, you know, and there's a moment even when I see Laura Linney with her brother where I'm a softy, Amy, I'm like a fucking soft softy. Like give me, like I, you know, it's sweet. I, I mean, I'm not like bawling. I'm just, but like, I get emotionally welled up. I, I can, I definitely can go there. I, those moments like get me like, so a lot of moments got me like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a moment. And I've seen it a million times. So it's like, uh, and I, and I do, I do like when uh, Bill Nye comes in at the end, like I, all those, all the climaxes, like I'm there, I'm on, I'm, I'm in the emotional edge of my seat. I'm not, I'm not, uh, there. And that's why I can say, and, and talking about Richard Curtis, he's a master of what he does. I think going back to the analogy I said before, it's just a, a magician showing you the same trick, but that's slightly different. But it, by the time he does it the eighth time, Rick, I see this trick. It's like, I'm not falling for this a little bit, but I think when you watch it the first time or when you watch it this time, the needle drops, the right moment, the, you know, the kiss at the right time, the applause, like all of a sudden, like all these things like work, you know, it's like a small town all running together. It's like, yes, these are things that emote, like that resonate with, they like almost activate serotonin in my brain. It's like, when I see people say, I love you in a public place, I'm going to get emotional. When I see, you know, uh, when I see, you know, someone be surprised by someone that they didn't think was going to come back, I get them like, you know, it's like, it's, it's hitting like these emotional pressure points in my life. I want to say that that is incredibly sweet (laughs) in that. I think, I think you sharing your heart like that is more romantic than anything in this movie. Oh, you're so nice. I think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. I aspire to be as tenderhearted as you. I, you know, it just, I just, I like that. I like that stuff. I like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And I think that when you look at what, you know, Richard Curtis has done, you know, the Notting Hills, the four weddings and a funeral, the about time, even, you know, Bridget Jones diary, uh, yesterday, it, they have created these very strong emotional connections with people. These are movies that have defined the rom-com and they are, and, and they work because of this, you know, and this is, you know, he's, he did it all through the nineties and, you know, into the beginning of the two thousands and then continues like, I haven't seen about time, but I know people who love about time. And, you know, I haven't seen yesterday either, but the same thing. It's like, he knows how to get your heartstrings. And I think there is a mastery there. It's like Steven Spielberg, like every movie he makes is going to work on some level. It may not be your favorite Steven Spielberg movie, but it's going to work. Like, it's like, they're that good. Well, that's what I found interesting about like the critical response to love actually Mm -hmm. is because I watch this movie now and I'm like, this is the most cynical, mean hearted, like cruel fat joke, shaming, sexual harassment is great movie like I've ever seen. Like I find Mm -hmm. it just so crass. Like it doesn't deserve to have the word love in its title. But when you go back and read the reviews from that era, almost nobody picked up on that. Like 
because most you left liked crying. It. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, most critics liked it. Um, even a lot of the critics I know personally that I think of as kind of like tough-skinned bastards, they liked it, which shocked me. I kind of want to like call them up and be like, really? Bro, I'm surprised. Um, but the ones who didn't like it didn't like it because they said it was too sweet and too saccharine. All things that I don't see in this movie at all anymore. Like, But they saw this movie through the lens of Richard Curtis being the master of the heartstrings, knowing that he is good at working the heartstrings. And because of that, like saw the movie as being like a big candied sugar cookie when now this movie feels to me like a Sour Patch Kid. And I thought that was really fascinating to see how the culture has shifted so fast where this movie now feels completely different when you watch it than it did, you know, 18 years ago. But here's what I'll say. Yes and no. This movie is still a classic. This is a movie that people are still watching. And there are so many people out there that don't feel this way. And I think because... It's more functional than most, right? I know I'm saying two different things. Like, like this movie, I can hate on this movie and I can also cry with this movie. I can enjoy the performances on this movie and I can think the character motivations are totally out of whack. And I don't know many films like this. It Rom-coms, I think, at its, at its base level, especially during this time, are cynical, right? They're like, my best friend's wedding, my, you know, it's like all these, we have to buy into these big things. It, it is about like, like, they're not like the grand romance. They're no, not no. like, uh, you know, they that's all not kind like of Emma. have their fingers crossed, I mean, which is, yeah. yeah. Maybe, I mean, this is why I think like we actually, the romantic comedy did die for a while is I think we're like building up into the last years before we stopped having them mm-hmm. for a while. Like in, in 2012, they didn't release a single romantic comedy at all that year. Oh, wow. It, you know, there was like this really sudden death of them. Like they'd been huge in the 90s, strong in the early 2000s in this period, and then completely died. I think it is because of what we're seeing in this movie that we didn't know how to be genuine about love. So we made romantic comedies that were increasingly kind of cynical, increasingly like bro and tits focused. And mm-hmm. that wound up killing it because we didn't know how to be sincere anymore. We kept making them and they kept being big hits, but it's like they were dying in plain sight. Can I, yeah, can I also say something? Richard Curtis is an amazing writer of a rom-com, but I do think that rom-coms written by men forward agendas that I think imprint on men and make for complicated relationships, right? Because what, you, what you're seeing is a lot of well, the way that men think relationships work and it doesn't treat women uh, in a way where they have any authority over themselves or that they could like or dislike. They're all there to be wooed or to be like bedded. Right. And and there is something about like and I, I know that he has created amazing characters. I'm not, I'm not this is not a, a slam on him, but I, I do think that a movie that is this wide in scope does miss a female voice. It, it does miss a yin and a yang uh, on some level, you know, and I think to me, that is why we have like some of these things where, where people like want to be Lloyd Dobler. People want to be like the British guy who goes to America because they see it in the movie and then they want to like kind of or they think it's OK to be like Andrew Lincoln with the signs out front. Right. Like it's like it kind of validates creepo behavior. I am so glad you brought this up because we have a living example that I need to play. Okay. One of the biggest fans of Love Actually was a longtime news anchor on Harbaugh. Chris Matthews. Here is him, a montage of him talking about his love of the film. Joined by NBC News Chief White House Correspondent Chuck Todd, who's in London with the president. But first, 
Here's a clip from the great movie Love Actually. It's been brought to the fore so many beautiful times in movies, my favorite being Love Actually. I'm going to show a clip from that. Well, we still remember this scene, and we'll play it again probably tonight again from uh, Love Actually. Like in that great, memorable scene from Love Actually. Did you see the very popular movie Love Actually? I did. I see him every time I rewatch that incredible movie, Love Actually. I think everybody on the planet fell in love with that guy, Colin Firth, and Love Actually. One of my favorite movies, Love Actually. My favorite movie, Love Actually. Love Actually. Love Actually. And that reminded me of this scene from the movie Love Actually, which I've seen about a million times. Now, perhaps this idea that Chris Matthews loves Love Actually, a movie with a lot of sexual harassment at the office in it, perked up your ears because you might remember that he eventually had to leave Hardball for doing exactly this. This is Chris Matthews recently on The View. Well, uh, the lesson is you're not supposed to uh, comment about a, a person's appearance in the workplace, certainly. And I know that rule by heart and certainly now. And I had uh, I had made a couple of comments that they, what we might, might have called the old days compliments, uh, but are not taken as compliments today by any means. Listen. I don't know, Chris Matthews, but I just think that this is a very interesting coincidence, and I will leave that there. One of the two reviews that I picked, the negative reviews that I picked that actually did not like this movie at the time, the movie is still rated fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, by the way, you know, called out kind of what you're talking about, you know, about like the repetitiveness of even the romances in this film. Uh, This is Christopher Orr in The Atlantic. This is long. I'll try to to trim it as best as I can. The central concern of the movie and subject of, by my count, seven of its storylines is not just romantic love, but romantic love of a particular kind. New love, untested love, infatuated love, love before the first I love you and before the first kiss. In recent years, a central ingredient ingredient of romantic comedy, the obstacle that must be overcome for the lovers to be together, has gotten more conspicuously difficult to come by. You know, the classic impediments, parental disapproval, difference in social class have largely fallen away in real life, forcing filmmakers to invent new, sometimes ridiculous hurdles, like one of the lovers lives in Seattle and the other in Baltimore. Love actually pioneers an alternative approach, the revolutionary idea that there really are no obstacles. The primary hindrance to romantic fulfillment is merely the fear of declaring one's love. As soon as the characters in the film find the courage to say, I love you, their romantic journeys are essentially over and they go straight to the happily ever afters. The idea that there could be any consequences or complications associated with, say, the Prime Minister of England shacking up with a domestic staffer half his age, or a cosmopolitan English writer wedding a provincial Portuguese domestic girl with whom he has not shared a common word of common language, are of no concern. If saying, I love you won't do the trick, which he points out is, is the case in the Lenny subplot and in the Thompson subplot, the film tells us then you should probably just drop the whole thing. This sentiment, it seems to me, comes very close to representing the end of romance. The tagline for Love Actually is, quote, the ultimate romantic comedy. Perhaps, but not in the sense the producers intended. I thought that was so smart that there's nothing yeah. in here about working through love at all, you know? And then A.O. Scott from the New York Times wrote a review that I just love because he was the only person who I think actually called out the film's uncomfortable sexual politics at the time at a major outlet. Weirdly, weirdly, it did not get brought up. And he called it out with a lot of flair. He called Love Actually, quote, an indigestible Christmas pudding from the British whimsy factory. It's super sweet, chipper demeanor masks a sour cynicism about human emotions that is all the more sleazy for remaining unacknowledged. It has the calloused, leering soul of an early 60s Rat Pack comedy, but without the suave, seductive bravado. The worst kind of cad is the one who thinks he's really a sensitive guy deep down. I like that. And, you know, 
we're going to be talking to somebody who, in many ways, opened this debate up 10 years later. Lindy West wrote an essay called Shit Actually. And Shit Actually is Lindy looking at this movie 10 years later and and kind of dissecting it. And I think she started this reevaluation of this movie, right? Like, yes, most critics loved it in the time, but she went back and revisited it. And I think she gave us all a different perspective. I love this essay. And we thought it would actually be really fun to bring her on the show and chat with her about not the movie, but the essay and how the essay kind of brought into her life uh, some pretty angry fans and 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 really how she dealt with all of that. Uh, you know, Lindy, uh, obviously, as the writer of Shrill and, uh, and many other books like uh, Shit Actually, which is a compilation of all of her movie reviews, and The Witches Are Coming. They're all great books, and we're so excited to have her here. Uh, please welcome Lindy West. Lindy, welcome to this episode talking about Love Actually, in which, can I say... You were the first person to play the Grinch. Congratulations on being the Love Actually Grinch. The person who wrote the essay that said, what is wrong with this movie? Why do we hold up this movie as like the ultimate romantic Christmas movie? And in so doing, I really believe your piece was a tipping point where that movie went from treasured classic, beloved guilty pleasure to what is wrong with all of us? Where are we in a fugue state? What happened? Your words have power. I'm, I am. You were like the Matrix. You gave us the <laughs> pill. You woke us up and brought us into a whole new world. Yeah, a world with like a little bit less happiness for people, <laughs> a little less joy. Just made it a little shittier. Uh, took away the one thing that made people happy once a year. So that was cool of me. <laughs> There's a lot of Christmas movies out there. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we really wanted to talk to you about this essay. And if you have not read the essay, please read it. Um, but the, like to me and, and, and to Amy, like being this person who, you know, comes out with this strong point of view on a classic and it, and yes, there's always these hot takes. Citizen Kane is actually pretty shitty and no one cares because it like, be like, okay, sure. But this resonated. Like it was like the, you lifted a curtain and everyone was like, oh, yeah. Like, and that to me is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, critic to critic, I want to know when that moment came where you're like, I have to write about this. I have to get this out. Okay. Well, it's like a combination of things. You know, I um, I was working at Jezebel at the time where it's just like a content factory. So every day they're like, feed the blog, feed the blog. You got to write 10 posts today or, you know, whatever. <laughs> will assassinate you. And so part of it was just like <laughs> sheer desperation. Like you're like, I, it was sort of trendy. I think it was just right around when this was starting. And now people do this all the time. It was like, oh, uh, what happened 10 years ago today? What We should revisit it. Like it was literally like, okay. Um, I think I had, I, I had like a tab open always that was like movies that came out 10 years ago today. And then I, so I feel like it came, uh, not out of some kind of artistry, but out of like horrible um, capitalism. You know, I just, I had to, I had to create content. You know, much like the movie itself, I might say. Totally, totally. Um, and then also, 
I am like a lazy critic. Like I, it's so much easier to be funny if you're being mean. And so, especially at that time in my life, I was like, you know, it was probably 10 years ago or something. So I was like in my twenties still, which right. was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, but I, I'll give myself a, a little credit. Like, I feel like I went in with an open heart and I was like, let's see what this is. And I was not one of the people who was like obsessed with love actually, but I didn't have negative feelings about it. I was kind of like, I think I'd seen it once and I was like, yeah, it's fine. It's a rom-com. And then I, right. and then I sat down and I watched it and it, and it really feels like so hollow and so cynical, especially if you're looking for stuff to make fun of. You know, you're just like, <laughs> I don't think there's anything here. And it's also the kind of thing that's such a product of early 2000s where I, I so I've been rewatching, revisiting movies now for my newsletter. And it's like, I don't know, just like as a woman, I'm like, how the fuck did I, did any of us survive this era? It's so gross. I don't no, know. You're right. Like, I think that we've, we've had this like awakening where we've looked back and I think you can look at like, all the stuff that's gone on with Britney Spears in the last couple of months. And you're like, oh, wait, that's really fucked up. And then, and everything starts, we were talking about this when we were talking about Promising Young Woman uh, last year. It's like, we've just started to look at the things that were just accepted and normal with, and maybe it's the distance of time at this point. I don't know. And maybe that's what we need. Like in the early 2000s, maybe it was like, oh, in that moment, like you can get away with this. You can kind of steal away like, schmaltzy bullshit but i feel like now um i don't know i find it interesting to go back and be like oh i'm not gonna watch the pam uh, the pammy and tommy sex tape and be and have a totally different opinion about it now i'm gonna be like wait a second that isn't like <laughs> that, that was wrong they stole <laughs> private property <laughs> but like but in the moment i'm like ha yeah fuck <laughs> Like, like yeah. it's a very weird thing like it's a mob mentality <laughs> yeah like fuck her for having sex gross yeah they kept it locked up in a safe. Their fault. Their fault for keeping it locked in a safe in their house. Assholes. Like, it's like, totally. no, that they did the right thing. I know. And I feel like at the time, probably, and maybe people still feel this way. Like, love actually is, like, kind of progressive in that regard. Where, like, the, the women, like, pretend to have personalities and, you know, real lives <laughs> and depth. And they don't. And neither do the men. But, like, like I don't know. I just watched um, The Mask last week right. um and it's like cameron diaz is just nothing and then and she like has to fall in love with the mask <laughs> which is <laughs> a, like a complete i mean he's like a ghoul um doing yeah there's no personality the that yeah once you make it past your 30th year on this planet you realize that you're becoming a time traveler of like the era in which you are alive and you're like almost get to revisit the era and that you like lived through and realize how much time has changed. I don't know. It makes me feel like I'm some sort of sci-fi person to like know that I lived through the love actually years and yet somehow didn't experience them in the same way. Yeah. It makes me really sad. Some, I don't know. Like I, yeah, I think there's something though about movies that make you feel something that make you forget all logic. And maybe it's why there's so many bad relationships because maybe one great date or, you know, a, a good kiss will make you forget that this person's an asshole, right? Because it's like when you when you break it down, and I, I remember reading that essay and, l like, I was 
stopping the essay in the middle of it to read it to uh, to my wife out loud. I was like, I need you to hear this part because it was a it's all there. It's not hidden. It's not like you took a meta meaning of it. It's like this happened in the movie. and You go, oh, wait. Yeah. And that to me is the thing that is so crazy. It's not like, oh, they underwrote it. No, it's right there. They are they are showing you like, yeah. Just embrace, like, you are going to be shitty or you are shitty and and just embrace, like, you know, uh, I don't know. It's just a funny way of how we just buy into these worlds so easily. Right. And it's like, I don't know, I feel like the the whole vibe of love actually is like, oh, isn't life complicated? I, you know, like, as though sort of, I don't know, your husband, you like, you, you're, you're Emma Thompson and you get old and repulsive and then your husband leaves you and then that's your story like you're just right that's it i said it to amy uh, like there's something there's a line right in the beginning that stuck out to me where they're talking about love and does love exist and the line that they say is akin to when september 11th happened those phone calls were about sharing love and not revenge. And, you, and, and when you watch it, like the first time, I'm like, yeah, those were, it's like, those people were fucking dying in like a plane, like that, like that's what you're hearing. Like that has nothing to do with like, is love dead? Like that's like, but you, you combine two images, like people dying in 9-11 and then go, yeah, they were thinking about love in their last moments. Like, cause they're dying. Like it's not, like, it's not a one-to-one, but when you hear it, you're like, yeah. Yeah, we are good like that. Also, we don't even know if that's true, to be honest. <laughs> I'll just say it. Like, personally, I would probably be really freaked out and scared and angry and a lot of things. And I would like to think that I would be calling my loved ones. But I don't know that for sure. The best version of me might. There might be a version of me that's just like rocking back and forth. I have no idea. Sorry. Also, if we, so sorry if to we, make it dark, but yes. No, if we zoom out and we recontextualize that like what has the the macro legacy of 9-11 been like has it been love or yeah, vengeance right. and death <laughs> i haven't really thought this through it's just occurring to me right now but like sure there's this way that love actually just so deeply crystallizes the 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 our self-mythologizing you know like it's just right. the anger that i got over that like dumb fucking yeah. blog post. Who cares? But like people, I'm like shattering something for people that is, and it's complicated because it's not like I think that everything should be serious and no one should just like have an escapist nice time. Um, but I just think there's a balance where you you can have escapism and you can be self-critical and you can think about the world around you and the implications of the media that you consume but people were like so personally angry at me for i don't know like did i actually take it from you like if you disagree with me then well like this how? is the whole issue yeah. with ghostbusters it's like you put all women in ghost but you've wrecked my childhood how the movie that you love is still complete in every way like there's nothing that will change the thing that you grew up with star wars the same thing it's like but it's like it's interesting to see that fan culture with a rom-com because we're used to seeing it with give me the Snyder cut. Don't give me the star Wars re-releases the way that I want them, but we don't really often see it in that side. So I imagine like 
the anger that you're getting. I once made fun of a cover of a romance novel and the amount of anger that I got. And it was very, I mean, it wasn't even a great joke. I just, I think I just took a picture of, of the cover and said book club is starting early this year. Like that was it. And it opened my, my eyes up to an amazing grouping of uh, of people out there and romance novels. And I, I, I read one uh, to, and actually read two, but it was, but, it's amazing though when you when you hit a nerve and you feel like people are coming after you for something that is, well, like you said, ultimately a kind of just my take, my benign take on something that I didn't. This is how I thought. Yeah, how did you deal yeah. with it? People people act like I infiltrated the Amazon headquarters, like I'm on Alias or something, and I destroyed the <laughs> digital master of you know, like I don't know, like you can just still have it. It's just still there. But I mean, I, I, it's, it's weird because I'm torn, especially as I get older and like, it is kind of mean to make people feel stupid for liking a thing that they like. And I, and so I get it. And I, and I also think it's boring um, to just be that kind of contrarian person who mm-hmm. doesn't like, I mean, you, like you said earlier, like who, who has these takes that are like, actually, this is bad. I don't really have much interest in being that, even though I've sort of built a career on being that. Um, But I don't know, I guess with love, actually, I do feel like there is some stuff in it that's so just culturally and socially toxic that I think I can sort of justify it to myself, um, the, the shitting on it. But, um, but yeah, people take it really personally. And I think it, I think it just feels like, like someone made you feel stupid for something that, was important to you. Well, you must, yeah, well, you, you must have, and this is what I'm curious about, like you, Lindy, because of being at the center of this firestorm, you've probably co- communicated or been communicated at by more passionate Love Actually fans than probably anybody on the planet. So I feel like you in particular have maybe some sort of insight into why people like it so much. Yeah, like people think it's nice. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's it's just like, it it see it feels to me like it's uh the you know kind of like middle american nice people who like a nice thing who don't want to think too hard about politics or gender or you know the the complicated stuff because life's really scary and hard and sometimes you just want like a hot person in a nice romance and also maybe i think to a lot of people it still does sort of read cuz you were conditioned this way to like it reads as romantic to have your husband's best friend like hold up a, a creepy sign telling yeah, you to well, fuck you like well i, I think what you're saying is like i mean well there's a couple things i want to just address the fact that i don't consider you a mean writer i consider you a very smart writer and there's a way that you could have written that and it could have just been like and i've read a lot of those versions of like it sucks this is dumb what you did was single-handedly like just like almost flip over every single plate on the table and this and that. And it's like, and again, it's all right there. It was a very astute, like, I think all your writing is like that, uh, which I love, but I, there's something interesting. And I want to see if we're like dancing around the same idea. Like when you reveal how something is wrong, sexist, or just stupid and people can't then not unsee it. 
right? Because it's sort of like, and that I think is probably the bigger issue for some people because it's like on some level, they agree with you. It's not just, it's bad, it's dumb, I hate this. It's like, it's dumb because of X, Y, and Z. And you never realized that this character was just simply like a figurehead and had no personality. And it's like, regardless if you agree with it, you see it, you can't unsee it now. It's like those weird pictures. If you look at it one way, it's like Lincoln's face and the other way, it's like a, a lady in a bikini. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, it's like, uh, but like, and oh, I think that that's that, my Christmas present for you, Paul. I can't believe you just described it. <laughs> Why isn't Lincoln in the bikini? Yeah, yeah man. Hey, that's my hot take. <laughs> um, no, but I know, I, yeah. totally. And, and I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a therapist, but I, I think oh, everything's so scary and bad and people spend a lot of time trying not to see that stuff. You know, because it's. Did you have to make amends to anybody? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, but have you have you ever run into anybody from the movie who's like brought it up? No, no, God, I never even thought about that happening. I mean, there's so many people in that movie. Yes, <laughs> I mean, some of them are dead. You... <laughs> oh, did you kill them? <laughs> no, I would never like kill Alan Rickman. Oh my God, that um, was a lot less convincing than your last two knows. Um, <laughs> no, God, who who might I run into? I mean, luckily there are, I mean, a lot it's... of them are British. I'm not over there. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm staying away. At no, least but they I, keep I mean, doing those like. Here's what the cast of, of of Love Actually looks like now, all grown up. So you will always be able to see that little boy coming, since they keep posting his picture <laughs> on every Instagram story. Oh God! Oh, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, no, I, I, I mean, okay. So I never thought that I would working as a like film critic, and I don't really <laughs> wouldn't really consider myself one. But uh, when I was like 23, so and I was just like, I don't know, and I was so mean. I was so mean when I was a kid, and I never occurred to me that someday I would go to Hollywood. And it's, it's bone chilling. Like I, I'm just like, and not that any movie star would ever go back and read my archive from the weekly newspaper in Seattle from 2005. But I don't know what if someday Sarah Jessica Parker Googles her name and my name. I'm dead. Look, there there are moments in this life. I mean, I've been doing this show. How did this get made for a very long time? And, uh, you know, and there was a moment I and they it always gets me like a like a slap in the face like I don't realize it's going to happen and a lot of the times someone will come up to me it's it's not the Sarah Jessica Parker it's the like some people on the side like you know I worked on that movie I'm like oh great that's amazing and and a lot of the times people will say I I agree with you or I saw that as you know because it's an awkward moment if they if they don't because you're gonna have to throw down uh but I don't think anybody wants that um but it is it's interesting but it's but we all are you can't like everything the reason why you work in tv the reason why you are a best-selling author and you've had your work adapted and you continue to to have this long career is because you have an opinion and I think that is interesting and obviously you have a, a bunch of people who agree with you but it is funny when there are these things that like draw an invisible line in our culture. And I think that that's the thing that I'm always like trying to, to wrestle with is like, what, what is sacred? And when you find that, like you go like, Oh, that's sacred. Like that movie, like that thing. Yeah. And that to me is a, yeah. And people frame it to me in this weird binary way 
like assuming that like as dedicated as they are to loving this movie i am equally dedicated to hating it and i'm like i don't think about it i don't care again i had to create content that day (laughs) and (laughs) i did i'm not like a professional like i'm not out here like building an anti-love actually movement yeah, you're not doing like, uh, you know, take love. You're not having rallies in the middle of uh, stadiums no. here, you know. But you are proving the point that the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Wow. Which I think I think that's is true. really. I mean, apathy actually. Maybe that's like the movie Ooh. we should all make together. Okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you you've had these. You know, you've had very successful. You've had you had a very successful career. But has there been anything? else like this that got that kind of response uh because like you said you're writing up you're feeding a content machine i mean i am especially now i am hyper careful like i Mm. to me as long as i feel secure in what i said like that it's accurate and that i'm not just i'm not just like dashing off a hot take for the reaction or whatever um then I feel okay about it. The, the the only thing that really, really hurts is when you, you fuck something up and then people call you out on it and, and you kind of agree, you know, like, right. As I don't care how many people are mad at me for my opinion. If I feel strong in my, like if I feel valid in my opinion, you know? Um, but so I take a lot of care to, to think real hard. I mean, if there was one big uh, life altering controversy in my career, it's when I, uh wrote about rape jokes in like 2014 when that was being talked about um uh, there's just no more toxic fandom than white male comedian fans yeah right sure (laughs) and i mean i think i like still have mental health struggles from like i i feel like to very traumatized from that backlash um but I wasn't wrong. Mm-hmm. And so it was never, there was never any like feeling of being deterred or that I was going to uh, apologize or that I had like fucked something up. And and that's the only, the, the only bad feeling is when the only like truly like cutting deep feeling is when someone you respect says you fucked this up and like you harmed someone. And in that rape joke debate, that went on for like years. The the counter argument was always like, you're going to kill comedy. If you start to talk about what people should and shouldn't say, I definitely feel like my work is not only a critique of that, but also a counter to that. Like I, I'm really careful and I'm really like, you know, uh, I'm conscientious and I don't say harmful, degrading, like oppressive stuff. And my work will, um, remain readable you know longer right, right, than yeah. people people who don't which is all i was ever saying it's like you know you can do whatever you want but this is going to change like this paradigm is going to change and you are going to make yourself obsolete if you don't pay attention and start thinking about what you're saying i don't know i mean and you can find like problematic stuff in my earlier work and if someone were to dig through my archives and call me out on on uh, things that I've written, I, I would engage with that and apologize, you know? Um, yeah. And I think, I think, but also the truth is we're all constantly evolving, hopefully. Right. Like, yeah. and 
if you haven't written anything like that since 2025, you know, 2020, uh, 2012 or whatever, you know, it's like, and you're, and you're moving, like, hopefully we all are moving forward and everything that, you know, that I've read of yours is it, it is funny. And, and like, we all are like, I'm a better person than I was five years ago. And I'm a better person than I was 10 years ago. I'm smarter and more aware. And I think that only comes from just paying attention. If, but if I, I hope that I think everybody's work, I think, reaches that same or hopefully if you keep on working, I think your work is on that same level because I think you're right. Like it just will stagnate and get stagnant and then it will just kind of peter out. Well, that's what I was thinking when Lindy was talking about like her years as like a baby critic who was really mean because I've always kind of thought to myself like there's nothing meaner than what is it like baby rattlesnakes and baby critics? Because like when you're earning your stripes as a baby critic, you're you're vicious, you know, like to try to, you know, say like, here I am, I have strong opinions. Like the very first review I ever wrote that got published, I said something so mean about Nicolas Cage's face that I still feel bad about it all of these years later. But in because of this conversation we're having, I'm starting to think maybe it's not a baby critic thing. Maybe it's just like being alive in the early 2000s and we were really mean. And we were yeah. watching movies that were like, if they love you, they'll always call you fat, but you won't know because it's in Portuguese. I mean, like, we've really got messed up messages about what it was nice to be, what it was like to be kind and charming to people, which was just like, be a dick, but I guess people will love you anyway. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure I'm still, I still am making a million mistakes and fucking stuff up and sure. some of my stuff will read poorly in five years. Totally. Um, and I think that process is really important and it surprises me when people don't want to take part in that process you know um which not to like uh sort of contort our way back to love actually but it's sort of like the reluctance to examine something because it feels comfortable is you know is real and intense you know i think people people really want to not have to do that work because it's exhausting and it, and it sucks. And sometimes you just want to watch a Christmas movie with Colin Firth or whatever, but I don't know, I guess like as a fat woman, like part of it is like, not all of us get to just watch this movie. And I mean, this is, this is the bigger conversation that like when you have only certain people in positions of power, making media, not all of us get to enjoy that media in the same way without erasing a part of ourselves. And it's really sad. And so, yeah, I guess part of me is like, well, the world hasn't always been that nice to me. Maybe I don't have to be that nice to the world. I don't know. <laughs> well, then do you think do you think there's a version of love actually that can be saved? Like if we put our brain tower, power together, could we do a love actually reboot that would actually be like lovable? Yeah. I think the three of us alone could do it. And we should. <laughs> I, and I think, you know, what I think is really interesting about that movie is it's. I, I'm a big believer. I love a writer's room. Like I love TV because what you get in TV is a group of creative people together. And if the, it's the right writer's room with different points of view and someone can call you out and go, like, you know what? That's a little stalkery. Like, so if we were, if we were in that room together and I'm like, I got a great idea. He shows up to our house and says he loves her. And with these signs, like, well, hold on. Well, Hey, that, that is a little, little bizarre, right? Like, I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's like, like there is, and I think sometimes in, in film, like these bigger ideas, especially in rom-coms are, or a lot of the times, and I, you know, again, I'm maybe making up too bold of a statement, are written with a very male point of view of like what relationships should be. And I know that that definitely imprinted on me, like 
as as far as I like what I thought romance was and and like how I approached girls in high school and stuff like that. And and it's a, a fine line between being romantic and creepy, uh, especially if you don't know whether and not that I'm sure I don't know if I was. A, I don't think I was a creep. I hope I was not. Creep. But like, you know, like acts of like supreme like uh love you know like whatever it is like lloyd dobler with a thing or or the signs they work in movies they don't always work everywhere else but for people who are wanting to fall in love and find the stuff they might do these things and i think that that's almost like the weirdest uh not that everything's gotta be perfect and whatever but it's like but there is something about how it affects our culture and if we should look at it like that like you know you can still do a fun romantic comedy without having like some super creepo moments <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, the guy that goes to America to find babes and yeah. then, like, brings them back with him. Like, if you think about, uh, and it's been a while since I've watched it, but, like, is there is there a woman in Love Actually who is, like, I mean, there's, like, Laura Linney sort of, sort of goes after right. a guy, but... Yes. I mean, not... Not really. Like, if he didn't like, ask her really. to slow dance and then say, can I come home with you? Even she's so passive. She just like sits there. Yeah. And she's also like set up that like she's only working there because she has this crush. Like it's not like you're good at what you do and you have a crush. It's like you really only stay in this lane because you have this crush of this person who doesn't even know you exist. And that also is like, oh, terrible. Like she's not even acted on this thing. It's not, she's not even in a relationship that's holding her back. She's in a crush that's holding her back. Like I... I definitely feel like, you know, I absorbed that passiveness for sure as like a, you know, teenage girl watching stuff like this, where it's like, okay, my best bet is to like hold a clipboard and wear a pencil skirt and hope that the prime minister notices me, you know, I guess like, which is just nothing. It's just nothing. It's a nothing life. Oh my God. Did you ever read the rules when, when, when that was like the book everybody believed in? I just like had a flashback. Okay, the thing with the rules and this was the culture of like the early 2000s was like it started with this anecdote where like a girl sees a guy across the room at a party like Laura Linney. You can picture Laura Linney in your head if you want to. And and she goes up to talk to him instead of waiting for him to come up to talk to her. And this book in the in the preface plays out their whole relationship. They, you know, get together, they date, they move in together, they fall in love. I think they even maybe get engaged and get married. And then at some point, the guy says, you know, I don't know if I ever deeply loved you enough to be in this relationship and breaks up with her. And the point of view from the rules is if he had ever liked you, he would have crossed the room. So if you had to cross the room to him, he was not willing to cross the room to you. He never liked you enough from the beginning. That literally was the bestseller in romance at this time. Well, I mean, I read, I remember reading the other book, which was like uh, how you, the game, the game, the rules, Mm -hmm. you know, and the game was a very like the same thing. It's like create a false reality of who you are and be just interesting and engaging and, and, and shit on the person that you like. And if you shit on the person that you like, then they'll be desperate for your attention. And then you can just have them as like, I mean, that whole book was like, to cultivate like fuck buddies. It was like, never meet, never make them upset, but never commit to a relationship either. So you can go back out and it all be, it, it's like this crazy. And look, he lived that life. I'm sure, you know, it's there, but it was like, but people were doing that. Then there's a VH1 reality show where they're taking nerdy guys and bringing them out to go get late. It's like, it is, these are the wrong thing. 
things that we're putting out there. But uh, wait, did I ever tell you the story about when mystery maybe hit on me and I wasn't quite sure what was happening? Oh, wow. No. Did I ever tell you the story? So no. one of my friends wrote a book and he like wanted me to come over and like read a draft of this book at his house. And for some reason, mystery was at his house. And so my oh, wow. friend went upstairs and I went to the backyard to read his like manuscript on a, on a, on a, like a chair. And at some point, mystery who had not acknowledged me when I came in was just sort of sitting there in the couch, came out and stood by me by this like lawn chair. He stood so that his crotch was like maybe a foot from my face. And I just kept looking at the manuscript because he was in full velvet and it was summer and I, I know who he is. And he Ooh. lit a cigarette and he smoked it while looking at me. And I never looked up at him because I just was terrified. And then he finally like put out the cigarette and walked away. And that was my interaction. But you never forgot it. I never forgot. I mean, he made an impression. He made an impression. I was like, it was the most aggressive smoking. Uh, I love it. Uh, well, let me just talk really briefly about your uh, your Substack. It's called Butt News, and I'm so excited because you are picking some great movies to go. It's a movie club. Every like week or so, there's a uh, a you know a, a new talk uh, talk around or talk about an essay about a movie. Like you said, that you covered the mask, uh, and they and what I love about the movies that you're picking is they are ones that. I haven't thought about in such a long time, but I've really been enjoying reading like uh, Save the Last Dance. Um, we just did Blair Witch Project. And I know you did Blair Witch Project and I oh, think yeah. that was great. And and uh, Coyote Ugly. Uh, oh, and Stargate was another one that I thought was so great. Like There is just, if you are a fan of... Uh, I, I think you're going to love Butt News and you should definitely uh, be subscribing to it. And it's just a great way to kind of go back and revisit and have kind of these conversations with these movies. You know, not all this deep, but just the fun way to kind of look back and be like, oh, yeah, right. Like, I remember this being one way. And then you look at it again. You're like, oh, boy, this is this is rough. <laughs> yeah, it's been really surprising to me. What's what? Like uh, what? You know, what's actually I didn't know the mask was going to be so bad. Like, I remember I said to my husband uh, before we started, I was like, I don't know if we should do this one. I feel like it's going to be funny. And then like, what right. am, how am I going to be funny about it? Like, I don't. And yeah. he was like, I think you might be wrong. And then it was unbearable. It was like, I, we did national treasure a couple weeks before. Yeah. And I was, and national treasure is just like, is like so hollow. Just trying to be Indiana Jones and like, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> And I, and I said like, oh, this is the first, this is the first butt news movie that I don't think you should watch. And then I watched the mask and I was like, like I would watch National Treasure 10,000 times. Uh, like the, the mask is so, so bad, but um, yeah, it's, I, I have a hard time even articulating what the met, like how I pick, like exactly what, what yeah. is the metric because I have a page where people can suggest movies and people will be like, oh, you should do you know, synecdoche yeah. New York or whatever. I'm like, yeah. no, 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 I'm not. That's not what I'm doing. Like, or people will be like, oh, you should do um, some comedy that came out last year or something. Or I'm like, no. It's, yes. It's like we a do specific... that. How this get made? It's, it's hard. It's like a needle that you have to thread. And it's like, it's gotta be. Well, look, there's so many people who are like, this movie is so bad. And a lot of times those are like just interesting artistic movies that you may not have liked, but it's yeah. not bad and it's not worthy to do on the show. And then there's other times where it's like, well, you didn't get that movie. Like, or that's funny or that's like, it's a very, I, I don't know how to describe it either. We have a producer on how did this get made? Her name is Avril and she does an amazing job at 
finding like it's it because I'll send her stuff. I'm like, this one looks good. And she's like, I watch it. It's fine. It's like and it is. It's like what is interesting to talk about versus what's yeah. just bad. What's just kind of boring. And like when you find something like National Treasure where it's like, well, this is hollow, but there's enough hollow there. But there's so many things that are just really, really hollow. And it's not it's like, well, yeah, it just sucks. It's like it all yeah. everything about this is not interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Or people will be like, oh, you should do, you know, like Geely or whatever is like the, yeah. the the famous bad movie. And it's like most of these are things that I watched as a kid and I don't want them all to be bad. Like, I don't think Stargate is bad. Um, no. Even Save the Last Dance was not that bad. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, it is, it is threading a needle, but I just, I, I love doing it. It's so fun. Um, it's so great to, to be able to get that. And, and, uh, I think people will really dig it. And so they should definitely, uh, sign up for that and, uh, and check that out. And I just so thankful for you to come here and chat with us about this because we just had a long conversation about love actually. And it just is like this essay that you wrote. I can't not think of that movie now without you tied to it in the way of like, just it opened my mind to it and and like I said it you are the Morpheus and not of all romantic comedy that's the other thing too it's not like you hate romantic comedy or I hate rom-coms it's like no it just this one is bizarre and when you really look at it it is aggressively bizarre uh and right like I don't know am I right (laughs) what do you you are (laughs) I, I mean I told you I literally was reading I'm reading the essay the first time I read it I was cackling and not wanting to finish. Like I was like, I I I felt like I had been I found treasure. I was reading passages out loud, like because it was just sort of like I just had never seen it. <laughs> I'd never seen something that I had because I was I was I saw it and I was like, okay, yeah, fine, I like it. It wasn't one of these things that I loved. And then because I felt like culturally we have adopted this movie as like we love this movie. It's, you know, this is what we do. This is one of those movies. I was like, maybe I missed something. I watched it again. I was like, and I almost felt the peer pressure of it. I was like, now I, I guess I, I really like Love Actually. So then going back to your essay, I was like, oh, that was my disconnect. Like my disconnect was here or on some level. I couldn't articulate it anywhere near uh, as well as you did. Uh, and now like I feel vindicated again. <laughs> but Thank I definitely you. was in the <laughs> I love. I, yeah, I was definitely in the I love Love Actually category for some middle years. Yeah, I, mean, I think I was too. I think I was like, yeah, it's charming. But especially like from a writing perspective, what do you think they were trying to do? Like, is it just cynical? Like, let's make a movie that'll make a billion dollars? Or is it, because like, are the jokes funny? Are there, is there, <laughs> I just don't, I, it's, it's baffling to me. I um, think they were trying to make a romantic comedy that appealed to men and women equally mm. it just doubled down so much on the macho humor and forgot all of the romantic comedy parts of it does that mean it yeah. feels like romantic comedy it was a shame to be a genuine romantic comedy so they're like how can we be cool man yeah. i don't know I, I also think it's it's like oddly an episode of the love boat you know it's sort of like you are bringing all these people on and you're only existing with them in 90 second to, you know, maybe a little bit more intervals. So if I was to watch one of those stories from beginning to end and without any interruption, I might have 
might have felt differently about this movie. But if I'm seeing 12 stories, and not all of them fully intersect, I mean, some of them when they intersect are so kind of wonky. It's like, oh, the waiter is the guy who's going to New York or whatever, or Idaho, wherever he's going. You know, it's like, all right, bullshit, bullshit. But it's like, but I do think there is an energy to just seeing shortcuts and not like Robert Altman style. It's like, you're just popping around that like everything is, it's like the buffet of movies. It's like, I can't get sick of it. I can't even really, I can't even really wrap my head around it because when, by the time we get back to Hugh Grant, I've really forgotten where I was emotionally (laughs) there. And then you're just kind of giving me signals and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I agree. I'm back there. Yeah. Yeah. He should like her. Like, I'm not looking at it linearly. It's like, it's like you're cooking and someone's talking to you and you're paying attention to ingredients. And then you're checking back in. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should do that. And like, wait, we should do, we should buy a new car. I'm like, wait, did I just say that? Oh, so yeah, I'm, I'm focused over here. It's like, it's constantly putting you off guard. And I think, you know, you put enough stuff in where it's like dead wife, old love, unrequited love, wanting love, you know, and you put it in and it's like, it almost just checks every single box. I don't think it's cynical as much as it is here you like it's like eat all the movies at once like you like it's like here's every rom-com like we'll get you if you even if you like four of them you're gonna walk away liking it and at the end we'll fucking sing and it will be great and there's a couple cynical people in here and there's a couple people that are sad and they're probably all happy we're all gonna feel great and you and you walk out you know like oh yeah like it's like it just it's too much it's just getting shot like a a machine gun and like the cast is great like you're like oh i saw all my friends i saw my friend liam neeson I'd love to see like this identical script. Like they take the script, but then like Lifetime makes it. Like what? Right. Does, you know what does it even feel like to watch without Liam Neeson and Emma Thompson or whatever? You know. Um, You're right I, about that. Like the so, simply like celebrity is exciting. Like it just yeah. simply being like I like. There's not a single bad actor in there. Some people I think are giving fantastic performances and. Uh, yeah, and it's a and you're just getting touches of them. Just like they, they're all gonna score. It's like they're all great, you yeah. know. It's like so, yeah. You, and so you fall totally. in love with those characters, and you don't have to even worry about their backstory because even in your head, you have your own backstory for them. You're, yeah, oh, it's yeah, like it's Hugh right. Grant. I don't know. Yeah, sure. I know what he is like. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so uh, it was so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you yeah. so much for having me. This was so fun. Amy, before we started the show, you sent out something. Please tell us uh, what you did here. Yes. I challenged you to join me in taking a quiz called Which Love Actually Character Are You Actually? Okay. Because I want to have this insight into you. And this is from PlayBuzz. So, you know, there's other ones out there, but I took the quiz It a lot of questions on this quiz. Devin took the quiz. Molly took the quiz. uh, And I'm very curious. I'm uh, do you want to go first or shall I? I'll go first, okay, I guess. Great. Who are you? And I I'm am... going to guess. I'm going to guess you are Alan Rickman. <laughs> you think I'm Alan Rickman? I'm thinking the way that you answered the questions, you might be Alan Rickman. You think I'm a I'm a sleazy wife cheating. I would go for a no, girl no, wearing no, no, tacky Debra No, 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 no. You're Bill Nighy. You're, you're Bill Nighy. Sorry, you're Bill Nighy. That I would take. But yeah. no, I am not. I am not the oldest people in the film. I am the <laughs> youngest person in the film. I am Sam, the naive boy, or as oh. they say, a bright-eyed romantic. I am willing to do anything and everything to achieve my dreams, even if that means cloistering myself in my bedroom to learn a brand new skill 
Yes, you're a little quieter than those around you, but that's never held you back in life. In fact, almost everyone is in awe of your determination and grit. When you set your mind on something, you always make it happen. And that, my dear, is truly inspirational. Well, Amy, this actually is so eye-opening because I, too, am Sam. (gasps) You're Sam, too? I am Sam, too. I am Sam. I am Sam. So we are both Sam. Oh, my Uh, God. I would backflip in an airport with you. There we did. We did it. We we just did. We just connected for two hours on this movie. Uh, Devin, oh my God, we're both Sams. Now, now the whole last three years of my life makes more sense. Uh, now, Devin, will you uh, will you kind of continue the trend? Are you also a Sam? Uh, Emma Thompson, baby. Ah, Emma Thompson. (laughs) All right. I am Karen. You are without a doubt our favorite Love Actually character. Not only are you reliable, trustworthy, and deliciously no nonsense, but you're also incredibly funny, too. (laughs) Oh, Devin. (laughs) Very nice. I I buy it all. And I know exactly why I got that, too. It's because I said I would listen to the Joni Mitchell song. I was thinking that the Joni... Because it's awesome. Yeah, well, when I saw that Joni Mitchell one, I was like, I think that's going to sway to her. And I had I, a feeling, I, but it was also my actual answer, too. I love yeah. that record. <laughs> Molly, uh, you know, Molly, we don't often hear Molly piping in, but Molly, you you hear all these shows. What what are you? I got uh, Billy Mack. No. Billy Mack, wow. Yeah. And, you know, nice. yes, yes, I am. I am 100% Billy Mac. I like it. I like it. All right. All right. I like a Billy Mac. You're a good Billy Mac. Um, all right. So this is really interesting. Uh, Josh is not here to reveal his uh, his character, but we should find out and, and tell you in a later episode. Amy, what a great conversation this was. Uh, I love kind of getting into this movie. And will I watch this movie again? Hell yeah. Yeah, me too, honestly. What a, so, I mean, yeah. come on. What are you going to so do? What does that mean? It's like... There is something about it. It's like there, like you know, we we rag on Michael Bay. Oh, it's a Michael Bay movie. It has blah 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 blah, and yet we keep on going to see Michael Bay movies. But we really don't have that for rom coms in a way, or maybe rom coms are that too. Um, Some of them are, like The Holiday. I love watching The Holiday with a group of people and yelling at it. I like romantic comedies you can yell at because if you want to like watch a movie that you love, maybe that's it. If you love a movie, you don't want to yell at it in with a group of people. But I don't love this movie, and therefore I love this movie because I can yell at it with a group of people. So I guess in my own way, I love this movie in the same fucked up way that the people in this movie love each other. I like to insult. <gasps> that is it. I like to insult this movie. I love this movie because I can insult it. Just like that uh, that African farming uh, couple. You can say that they're ugly, and but yet still you love and want to move to Paris with them. Oh my God, that is it. He's actually made a movie that reflects the movie itself. By the way, I'll I'll say this. I think the reason why this movie is successful uh, to just kind of put a fine point on it is it's The Bachelor. You get to sit there and watch all these different relationships kind of play out. And you're like, oh, I like that one. You get to sit there and judge. It has a reality TV element to it in the sense of you root for people. You you yell at like, I mean, that's what we do when we watch The Bachelor. We, the general, we, you know, like that reality show with Fuckboy Island, whatever it is. Uh, Fuckboy Island is is great. Fuckboy Island is better I know it's great. Uh, Yeah. uh, But... The best season of The Bachelor. And because, you know, again, uh, anyway, yes, those shows are great. But I think that that's there's an element to that, like where you it's sometimes it's nice to curl up with your favorite actors and just like watch them be great, you know, and, and I think that that's uh, really good. So before we get to our final Christmas movie, we are going just like Lindy gave us the uh, the different pill to open up our minds to reality. We are going into the Matrix itself. We're going to see, you know what this world is 
when we take the red pill next week and revisit The Matrix. I'm so excited for this new film. And as excited as I am for the new film, I don't remember a goddamn thing from any of these three. Like, I remember images, but I don't. So I'm so excited to kind of go back and watch Matrix. It hasn't been a movie that I, like, go back to often. So I'm excited about this. Well, I feel like I've entered the Matrix with my like sudden realization about how I feel about Love Actually and now having to understand the love relationship in Love Actually. So I feel like I'm in the right mindset for the Matrix now, man. Bring it on. A piece of me has been broken and is ready to be rebuilt. All right. So take a listen to the trailer as if you need to. you were so sure was real what if you were unable to wake from that dream how would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world what is happening to me the answer is out there neo it's the question that drives us what is the matrix The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Save the world. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. No one has ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy. Because Kansas is going bye-bye. And you can get uh, The Matrix wherever you get your movies. I mean, simply, it's easy. It's not going to be that hard to find The Matrix. Uh, All right, people. Uh, We'll see you next time. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there 
where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. 